Podcast. I am Matt, aka Stormageddon. I am John. I am Steve. And welcome to the final review-ish episode of the Crash Court Podcast for the year. Ish. Emphasis ish. on the ish. On the ish. Review it's gonna be ish pretty for, loose. Well, it's also for the year-ish as well. Right. Since it's more the season-ish. Ish. Yeah. We're yeah. really operating at a season now and not yearly. Aw. Yeah. <laughs> We've hit that point. Um, I promise well, we won't go seasons. British and wait three years between episodes. That's, That's right. true. That's and right. release. Only like we would have to, but we would have to release three, only three. three. We'd have to release three to twelve. We'd have to release three like six-hour e- episodes to be like the really hardcore British. I was that's oh, what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't even think we have that in us. No. I'm still waiting for that fourth season to come out. It's coming. I, I there was a trailer. Yeah, yeah, sure. But Christmas is also coming. <laughs> Remember when seasons were cleanly like September to May? The yeah, British now there's you mid-season could rely breaks, on. and now there's mid-season uh, breaks. I think it all started with that 2009 writers' strike. Because that's when people stopped expecting things. Well, then USA also screwed around with it as well with a lot of their television. They were one of the first trendsetters to do 12 episodes at a time, usually for their summer shows. But a lot of times it would be like 12 episodes, three months, four months of silence, 12 episodes. Which British shows did a lot also. I mean, Doctor Who had done that later on as well. That was a transition to American television. When Americans decided to just own up to it. (laughs) At the same time, they started producing some really good television as well. Like USA upped their game from just Monk to all the other things that they were doing. Well, it's good we're talking about uh, visual media because that's relevant. Yes. um, Today, if you tuned in last week, then you know what we're doing. But for those who didn't and are just joining us for now... You can read the title. But maybe they didn't read that either. Maybe it auto-downloaded to their iPod because someone else signed them up for our podcast. Always possible? That's possible. Anyway, we're doing Pop Star Never Stop Never Stopping, uh, which was created by the Lonely Island, both soundtrack and movie. Um, for those who need a reference point, think This Is Spinal Tap. This Is Spinal Tap was a fake documentary, both created by the same comedians who wrote the music and wrote the film. About a, a rock band, more of an arena rock band. Arena rock band that their, rock. and their ups and downs yeah. and how they came, fell apart and got back together and that kind of a thing. I'm lead guitarist. I'm also lead, lead guitarist. guitarist. <laughs> so this is that, but with your charisma-based pop star. Well, and this... Came into existence, I firmly believe, because in the uh, mid to late 2000s, there were a bunch of pop musicians doing uh, tour-fueled new album documentary video. Behind the music, like both Katy Perry and Justin and Justin Bieber are the big ones I can think of. Where they went on tour, they took cameras with them, they were putting out a new album, and it was just a lot of behind the scenes and retrospective stuff about their past and and their future and all of that. And this plays on that, where Andy Samberg is playing the lead of the film, Connor For Real, who's originally in a three-person band named The Style Boys, and then starts to gain momentum as a solo artist and then ends up, the band breaks up and he goes on his own with one of the members still following suit while the other one disconnects completely and so on and so forth. And those two other members are, uh, well, they're played by Akiva Schaefer and Jorma Tacone, which are Lonely Island. Island. So it's essentially them. And it looks like they have most of the same roles as well. I mean, if you just think about it in terms of Andy Samberg is 
probably the more well-known visual of the three, just mm -hmm. because he was on SNL, he was the actor, and he has a lot of other acting gigs. But then it seems that Jorma Tacone, who plays Owen here, or Kid Contact, uh, he actually is the most, he's mostly the producer, it seems, from mm -hmm. Lonely Island. So as well as performer, singer, yeah. and all of that as well. And and um, and then Kid Brain, Lawrence, played right. by... Um, Akiva Schaefer. Is also a member of the band, singer, you know, dancer, lyricist, um, and he... It does seem to mirror caricatures of what I'm guessing is their real dynamic, you know. Similar, except I doubt that he went off to a farm. No, of course. For instance. <laughs> um, and so I picked this, you know, I suggested this. This is kind of an all pick, essentially. But it, I suggested this for us to take on after John had brought us Life is Strange. And we had retroactively agreed that that was pretty much something that we agreed to do as a team and take on another medium. I feel like this also is interesting because like this is Spinal Tap, I think it's unique that we're taking on someone we've reviewed before just on the album scale who now have written a movie that reflects their kind of music as well as the music. In short, this is going to be a silly episode. Yeah. <laughs> this is a silly end of year project for us, but it does like merge quite a few things because it merges the very few times that we've tried to tackle comedy albums, mm -hmm. which, what, well, probably half of those is the other time we did uh, Lonely Island back in episode 80. And then... I guess Weird Al Yankovic? Is that the only two that we've done? Um, Comedy-wise, I believe so. I mean, and even True Weird Al... True comedy, yes. True I would, comedy. I would call True comedy. Not, not of... just, like, happens to have comedy in it. Yes, okay, that's, that, that's that would be, like, Steam Power, Giraffe, yeah. yeah, like yeah. They've, they've And even that. Weird Al, I would use the term comedy loosely, because even though stuff is meant to be funny, it's not always about the punchline. Sometimes it's just about the parody. True. And how clever it is, not necessarily how funny it is. So I use the term comedy but loosely course, with Weird Al. But even though you don't think that applies to today, Oh no, I definitely, I definitely think it applies yeah. today. I'm saying Weird Al specifically is not just comedy music. True, but it, these guys are definitely based yeah, on parody. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Parody is going to be a huge component of this. But of course, the other thing that crosses over, kind of connects, is the few times we've done soundtracks. And yeah, Life is Strange was recent. We hadn't done a soundtrack in a really, really long time before that, and it seems silly that a comedy film should be the next soundtrack in our very limited lineup of soundtracks. Well, I think, I think again, yes. I think choosing just a comedy would be strange. It's the fact that it's both. That it's that is... they did everything, and also, as I mentioned in the last episode, every time we've attempted sounded tracks, it didn't really work very well. You know, even when we did Wreck-It Ralph, which we all viewed together, we went to the movies together, even though I had seen it separately, and then we listened to the soundtrack and reviewed it, I felt like... You know, it was missing something. Even when we did Foo Fighters' new album, which was based on their TV series that they did for HBO, where they recorded in a different city, there was stuff missing. And I think if we want to take on stuff that is so rooted in multiple mediums, it has to be less about the review and more about the experience and the medium. That itself. is a good way of putting it. And, and so I think that's why this was an important end-of-year project for us, because I think it's it takes a band that we are already familiar with and that we, for the most part, like... And diving a little deeper and seeing what else they do besides just the music. And that they are musicians, but that they're also writers. They wrote this film. And yeah. that's that's something that we definitely haven't encountered in any film. And to relate it back to Life is Strange, just one final point. you got to remember, Life is Strange is, is as non-video gamey as a video game can be. This is as non-documentary as a mockumentary can be. Like so it's also bucking against the media itself and what sort of uh, preconceived notions you might have for a documentary or for Life is Strange for a video game because they really are breaking out of their shell just in the general concept and what genre they're really presenting themselves as. Now that said, this isolated in a box to so start talking about the movie, I, 
I feel like isolated in a box, you could almost believe in moments it could be real because there are things that happen in this film that though they do seem absurd, you know, things similar to it have happened in pop culture and to pop stars. But there's that parody element is yes. the thing and it becomes so obvious in various moments throughout the film right. who they're making fun of and poking yeah. jab of that it's hard to take it as like, oh yeah, it could it could be real because it's clearly this mishmash of all these different elements. Right. It's but, pop culture and a blunder. But at the same time, some of them hit very close to home, like the uh, spoof that they do a few times on TMZ specifically. Yes, where it's just in the TMZ studio. And the way it's presented is not so far-fetched for what TMZ legitimately does on their episodes, yet you can sense the satire in it just in its general delivery. Like the second scene that they do with it, there's a bit where the main um, writer, the, I guess he's the editor for the entire TMZ thing, I don't know he's what the his guy job would be. He's the guy that stands over the edge of cubicles, basically holding his pretentious little coffee mug and then sort of plans out the the things they're going to discuss in the, the episode and they're make fun say of about people. like yeah. this is some kind of serious job. It's that stupid setup that but I have personally hated for a long time. I was really it's glad the they, made, they made further step. It's fun the of further it. thing that he's got a sippy cup in the second scene and it's not just a sippy cup. Yep. He's got four sippy cups taped, taped to one together, another yeah. that's right. and he takes a sip out of all of them and then he just starts going around and taking sips out of all the other people associated there. Yeah, they're business or sippy cups. The first time that they do it there's just the really obnoxious very overblown fake laugh that shows. Oh up that's just like okay yeah no you guys do think it's funny but it's not actually funny but you're gonna keep pushing the bullet and try to present it as funny and then they keep going with it and then it's just like then it becomes just bad taste and then it becomes like maybe it's funny again but now it really actually feels offensive i mean is there any is there anything more annoying than a paparazzi hipster yeah no basically the answer is no there are but they're usually individuals under the age of five like that's the only thing that could possibly be more annoying than these individuals and even then i like most kids and i was gonna say and if john hadn't ended with that i was gonna say if you like kids and want to send hate mail you could send it to john.sanders it is most i finally got one over to john all right no no no. he said if i hadn't of any right because i know you like kids there's no hate forthcoming here Um, Uh, before we begin there's another type of film that this is and it's it's that snl kind of has everybody film and the funny thing is not that just that like flavor of the year current snl film because it's brought together all of the guys that were back in like the early 2000s crowd and the 90s crowd. And But keep in mind, it's not a SNL movie. No. They're, these relationships were born out of SNL. Well, it but, always is that. Right, it, right, I mean, course. that was basically Adam Sandler's giant. That was his yes, career. Yes, sure, sure. Yeah, that was Chris Farley's opposed, career. As opposed to, say, the Night at the Roxbury movie, which was actually born out of SNL. Yeah. Or Wayne's World, which was born out of SNL. True. But people are always going them. to pair them together. And sure, because it's a community, it's going to have a lot of the same figures. But let's let me just. This is what I mean by he has everybody film because it's not just that because it also has the pop culture as a whole thing here. Here's the cast: Andy Samberg, Akiva Schaefer, Jorman Tacone, Sarah Silverman, Tim Meadows, Ashley Moore, Bill Hader, Chelsea Peretti, Chris Red, Emma Stone, Eric Andre, Imogen Poots, James Buckley, Joan Cusack, Joanna Newsom, Justin Timberlake, Kevin Nealon, Maya Rudolph, Mike Birbiglia, Weird Al Yankovic, Will Arnett, Will Forte. And that's not even counting the cameos. Right. Who actually played themselves. Popular rappers, musicians, pop stars. Akon, Michael Bolton, Big Boy, Mariah Carey, 50 Cent, Simon Cowell, Snoop Dogg, Jimmy Fallon, Arcade Fire, Steve Higgins, Walter Jones, DJ Khaled, Adam Levine, Mario Lopez, Danger Mouse, Naz, Pink, Questlove, ASAP Rocky, The Roots, RZA, Seal, Martin Sheen, Ringo Starr, T.I., Carrie Underwood, Usher, and Pharrell Williams. Yeah. And that's not counting all the stock footage of uh, people like Justin Bieber and Paul McCartney showing 
just clapping up. in the background. Just, just like little, yeah. like oh, here's like they pulled. We're referencing film from this. the from the Grammys and stuff. Yeah. yeah, things like that. So there's a lot of people involved with this piece of media. Yeah, it it. It, which is impressive to me about the Lonely Island because they always kind of had that pull power. I mean, on the the Whack album, which we did review um, back in episode episode eighty, um, they had Michael Bolton on Jack Sparrow, the song where they wanted to write a really cool club jam, and it ended up being about Pirates of the Caribbean because Michael Bolton had just watched it that night or whatever. And so you know, and Adam Levine and Justin Timberlake. These are have all been working with all them for pe- a while. People who have been working with them for a while, but the fact that they were able to branch out. I mean, you didn't even say him, but Weird Al was at the end of the movie as I well. Did. I did. Oh, you did say I, I said everybody. I, I must have missed it. Unless um, Wikipedia is missing someone. Um, but it's one of those things that, like, people you didn't even expect to be in the movie were in it. Like Weird Al, who p- played the lead singer of a fake band that was on it. That I don't even remember the name of. But they were, like... Hammerleg le- hammer lead singer. Hammerleg is the name of the Hammerleg, yeah. And so, you know... It's just always been fascinating to me that they were capable of pulling in these people together because everyone wants to be in on the joke. They want to have fun. They're a magnet. And also, if they're not going to be in the joke, they look like such prudes because it means that they're... I mean, it implies that they're somehow ignorant to the obvious uh, pretenses or pitfalls of the music industry. Right. I mean, I think the one I'm... As long as you own up to it. ...most excited to see in these things is Michael Bolton because he's always been... (laughs) Nah, Justin... Well, I mean, Justin, but Justin's always seemed to have a pretty good sense of humor f- and also he, throughout his yeah, career. Him, him and, and Andy Samberg. Right. They're, they're tight. But Michael Bolton is someone who is perceived as pretty serious to take the piss out of himself and even other people, I think, is really great. Well, he recently did the Last Week Tonight episode with yeah. uh, with John Oliver. So, I mean, yeah, he's he'll, he'll do pretty much anything, I think. If, yeah. I, I think he I, gets It's not that you perceive him as being serious. All of these people in their own respective industries are perceived as serious. That doesn't mean they can't have fun. Fun, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think a good way to move through this is to use the album track by track as a framework just to discuss the movie and the music and kind of get into some conversations about the cross between the media. And we start with the first single from both the album and Connor's career in the movie, which is I'm So Humble featuring Adam Levine. This song won't get out of my head. The acapella... Uh, thing in the beginning of the, the what Steve just imitated it's just it's forever in my head that said this sounds this sounds like a Lonely Island song with, with Mr. Adam Levine they've worked together before it, it you know and I'm gonna call bullshit on one thing. It's not forever in your head. It's in your head for the time since you watched this movie. That's and it'll true. probably last about a week, yeah. provided you don't overdo it. That's well, true. Well, considering the actual song itself, I mean, that's that's pretty strong staying power for something <laughs> no, yeah. that's supposed to be the flavor of the hour. Why, not it's the first week. track. They gotta have something like that. But it is a great little mock of what every pump-up song really ends up being. It's it's auto-tune meets kick drum and being self-proclamating about the obviousness of how awesome you are, except you don't want to say it outright. That's the, that's the crux of this. Bar none, I am the most humblest. Number one at the top of the humble list. My apple crumble is by far the most crumblest, but I act like it tastes bad out of humbleness. That that's just the that's just the first part of the first verse. It's the like, tip of the iceberg. Yeah, but He's, what's really interesting also about that verse and about this song being at the top of the movie is this is a movie about one person and his rise and fall 
And to start the movie, he has a song about being humble, even though he has a whole movie about himself and his life and his rise and fall. Yeah, and it's it's scene after scene, you know, of things that frame him in a larger-than-life setting, but yeah. also about people that have kind of, like his yes-men crowd, people yeah. that his entourage just traveling around with him, who tell him behind his back that, oh yeah, he just made the shot into the hoop, right? Yeah, he, yeah. But And he just presumes that he did. Of course, he was, he was miles off. It's that kind of atmosphere, and also the fact that they call him... They call him the guy with charisma. What does that mean in the end? Yeah. What does that mean? The guy with charisma. After they go through the lineup and they say, Owen's the guy who does the beats. Lawrence is the guy who does the lyrics. And, well, I mean, Connor's just, I mean, he's just obviously the star. That's one of the lines <laughs> from the face. is obvious. Yeah. And, and I guess in the end, that's really the question. Is like, what does it take to become a modern celebrity? At least anyone, anyone since 2000, probably even long before that, anyone in the pop era where it's just, as long as you have an image, as long as you have something that people connect with, however shallow it is, and as long as it can be provable, like let's say how many people are following you on Twitter, then that is what celebrityhood is for the 21st century. It also starts setting up the documentary aspect of this film pretty heavily because not only are you getting shots of hanging out with your homeboys or yes men, I get, uh, yes men is a little more appropriate, but also we start getting the talking heads right after this where uh, Mariah Carey comes in and without any real like emotion just goes, no, this song spoke to me it, 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 because I am really the most humble person I know. And the way <laughs> it's delivered is just so deadpan yeah. and does a great job of setting up like, okay, this is, this is going to be a lot of satire. Right off the bat, they're showing you this is just going to be about the satire of what being a pop star is. And that's also the flip side of it is like people will latch on to some pretty shallow things for what celebrityhood is, but no one likes someone who's overly cocky, right. which is why it helps to just just feed a little bit of that into your work, right? Whatever it is, just say, just show that you're humble, just so that there's a right balance there that keeps you on, on your, your height, on your big plateau. I, I think it's a fairly obvious message, but it's it's deep enough for what you'd expect from this film. Right, and it's this song is a good... Starting point for the film, there's a lot of montage stuff like we were talking about with this song playing, and they cut back to it, and it's it's pretty much they take a moment after this to talk about his past and how he separated from the Style Boys, which is his old band, and it also talks about how he treats his fans, and that's how we move on to track two, which is the first dialogue track on the album, something soundtracks do often, for those who maybe don't listen to a lot of soundtracks, they sometimes offer quotes from the movie. Mm. I'm kind of not sure where I sit with that on and out. I mean, I guess here it works because they're setting up each track. Usually the quote is about the next track. The interim dialogue. I mean, the first time I was ever exposed to that was actually Tenacious D, although it was taken from their sketches, from their shorts in the Mm -hmm. television series. But nevertheless, it it definitely sets... Like, I don't know if you'd have the context for some of the tracks further on the first Tenacious D album if it wasn't for that dialogue. Right, sure. It it makes it a more well-rounded product. When it's a soundtrack, then it's just... uh, I I think this one could have done without it. This particular soundtrack. I, I guess so, but they're so brief that it doesn't really take that much away from it either. Yeah. They're not. Um, they're not full sketches. And and so here, he, uh, the dialogue track is about his hot new single because he. They're talking about in the documentary how he sometimes feels like he's oversharing with his fans on Snapchat or whatever yeah. live chat program. A nice little but, aside, sort of poking fun at the way social media interacts with celebrities. Yeah. Um, and, and how I, certain celebrities use it 
to overshare while other celebrities use it for finger quotes good. Kardashians. Yeah, I know. Maybe that's their way of being humble, of being personal, you know? Just right. like I think I'm that's brushing like the my opposite teeth. of it. Well, that's what he's doing. He's actually that oversharing I brush aspect my teeth here. just like you. And, yeah, to, and before, that actually I did like that though. That kind of like mentality montage, it shows yeah. it shows how childish the mentality is. How like yeah. he really just it's I don't think stunning. he understands what That's he is. That's the thing. Like, it's the presumption that people would actually care about that minutia. Yeah, which everybody life. did. In the beginning of Twitter and Facebook, everybody shared, I just had eggs for breakfast. Like, yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. did that. What's nonsense. the food Sometimes one? Sometimes people still The food one that you're supposed people. to do where you take pictures of your food and you shared your food and you put filters on it to make the food look actually Being good. Being a foodie? No, no, no. There's a specific thing. I think it might have been part of Snapchat for a while, but it no became idea. a specific I had a friend app. who became a sous chef, and believe me, I welcomed his photos oh, after I'm sure. he would finish his his. <laughs> cooking. But something I also want to mention before we get too far in this, like with Life is Strange, we are not perfect recollectors of everything in the universe. So if we leave out parts of the movie that you and you've seen it or parts of, you know, we're not hyper specific about each track, we're trying to have a casual conversation about this media together and whether it works together, doesn't work together, whatever. But we're not going to recall every meaty little point of everything. And this so, is a pretty loose discussion. It's, uh, give us a break. It's the holidays. <laughs> however, if you are listening, uh, Star F, and you want to chime in with things that you like that we may have missed, that is very well. A direct call out to Star F. Yep. Nice. Keep, I mean, keep our keep our close fans close. <laughs> right, exactly. All right. So let's, I, I do want to read this one, though, because this is kind of the important setup for the next track. The hot new single, just a little brief bit of dialogue, is I got a hot new single coming and addresses some social issues that I think are being ignored. So keep your eyes filled for that. We're going to be surprised releasing it next Thursday at noon. Um... All right, the social issue track, because every pop star has to have one. Well, Otherwise, they're not being relevant, over, and they don't understand the you're common You're glossing man. over the surprise release next Thursday at noon. Also. The which, surprise and I was focusing release. just on the uh, the social issue thing. But the next track, Equal Rights, that does immediately follow this, is a spoof, a, a straight-up spoof of uh, Macklemore's Same Love. Right. I mean, I don't think... I would say that it's about that song and other songs like it. Also... The thing that's really funny about it is, you know, going back to what Steve said, you know, something that's been ignored. It's a song about equal rights for pretty much focusing on homosexuality and equal rights for same-sex marriage. But the time period this takes place in is now, yeah. and it's legal to get married. Which in fact, is, there's of dialogue the joke after the entire song is finished, and like it's legal now. I believe that line comes from Ringo Starr himself. Yeah, he goes, it's, it's legal, legal now. now. Yeah, so that's I think where 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 some of the humor starts, but. As we go, and this song is featuring Pink, um, the one of the first pop stars we have on this record, and or P exclamation point Pink, which is how she spells her yeah, name now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I think what's what's important to talk about here <laughs> in the lyrics is that this song becomes. It doesn't become. It is, is completely him trying to reaffirm that he's not gay. Right. It's the straight white male singing about homosexuality, but making it clear that they are not a homosexual. So yeah. it's not actually the straight ma- white male singing about homosexuality. That's what it is at the end of the day. It's 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 not that social issue. It's more, I would assume that there may have been a rumor he's gay, and now this song is being released you know, that's so that he can breach the idea of... I'm not gay, but I'm okay with gay people. That's an interesting, yeah. To, to, I, I, I see like that, that insinuation in the song. That's definitely I do. insinuated in yeah. this song. Especially because it's not just him saying the words not gay quickly at the end, or even going so far as to say not gay. 
and gay. Just just quickly, just throwing in at the end of every line, not gay, but also throwing in things like titties and sports. Like just randomly saying Hot the wings. word sports <laughs> to be like, I'm a man. Beef jerky tastes good. <laughs> you know, yeah. manly things. Just right, generally acceptedly manly things. Right. Yeah, and I think, and, and uh, for that part of the joke, I mean, it is a one-note joke eventually. By the end of the song, it is fairly one-note, but I do really like... This one note joke, it gave me a laugh. It did. I, I, especially because in the film, and they do this a few times, this is one of the first times they do it, there's a music, a finger quotes music video for this song within the movie, yep. and it's played at length. From beginning to end, we see this music video. Yep. So pretty much right after that bit that Steve read, we get shown the music video he's talking about. Yeah, and uh, all right, let's be real here. Do you think there's a shot being taken in Macklemore? I, I mean, I think so, but, uh, you know. I, I mean, don't know if it's necessarily him directly, but considering the sound of the track even has that kind of slow burn epic build that Macklemore used. What, was, that, what, was, what was the name him? of that song? Same, Same Love. Same Love, and toward the end of his, of his album, The Heist. I mean, the, yeah, just the cadence of this. Musically, yeah. it sounded really, really similar. The intensity in his vocals like he's rising to the the dramatic social issue at play like yeah. it seemed to be a direct parody here it, it does um but it is common for pop stars who have no business chiming in on the state of the world yes chiming in on the state of the world true and so i think it's also a dig at that yeah but just it the doesn't... general of it that and then there's the added thing that John pointed out. Yeah. I do believe there's that insinuation. It that doesn't preclude pop stars from chiming in on things because when used properly, they're pop stars. They have millions of fans. Well, of course. It's good for them to actually use that power to affect but, social change. But the way the this song way. is constructed. No, it's yeah. the exact opposite yeah. of that. It's Rather, not trying to affect social change. Mostly because the social change is already being made that he's insinuating hasn't. Yeah. But rather, that just all that points out is that there's another thing here, and that's that very often it's not just that pop stars have no business chiming in; it's that very often they have a shallow understanding of, of what they're chiming this, in. Of about. what they're chiming in, and about. that's exactly what this is. Yeah. Being that it's about a social issue that was already made legal before the song came out. Yeah. But what this does is actually starts to show the cracks in his career because this song is definitely not well received by fans. And it was amusing to watch him with the documentarian going over the the uh, written reviews on the internet and looking at them and then trying to shake off the negative reviews saying, "Oh, yeah. it's not right." It's and like poop. they gave me they gave me the poop emoji. Yeah. Like I, I think it might be broken. Nope, the way they're describing it. No, I think they wanted to do poop emoji. And then the reference to the onion, which was a nice little reference of of, okay, the newest Connor Forever album, magnificent, but it's The Onion. Yeah. And he doesn't get, it's The Onion. Yeah, a shallow understanding even of what The Onion is. Right. And it, and this this does show what they play up throughout the movie is that Connor is, the more successful he gets and the bigger head he gets, the more he shakes off all the things that made him good and starts to plummet. And it actually leads right into the next track, Turn Up the Beef, because this is cited as his true career-starting track by himself, because this is where he actually does a guest verse on a song done by Emma Stone's character, Claudia Cantrell, yep. yeah. I believe is her name. It's a guest verse. like, And this was supposed to be his break into stardom. And here, even though when he was in his original group, they were already stars, this was the one that launched his specific his career. His solo career. Which it, it shows that he never really failed in music up until this point of his career with equal rights. Uh -huh. He never failed. He sold four million copies of his first record. Yeah. Thriller, 
again. Well, even like just the with the confidence of having the documentarian there, you like, know, while he's looking at the reviews. He of says, course, I'm going to sell expects, 8 million, not go. 4 million. I'm going to double that. That's right. So for him to start failing right off the back, and now here they're referencing Turn Off the Beef, it's a, it's a nice little, like, point of his mentality. He's he's kind of childlike because he's never actually had to face the adversity of failure. Which is what a lot of people talked about with, with Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber, these young pop stars, or even Britney Spears, who don't really know how to fail because they'd only been successful. Um, this song, Turn Up the Beef, is taking a stab at Lady Gaga, who Lonely Island has worked with, you know, and it's that kind of a dancey, synthy pop song. Club-oriented, definitely. But it's something important to say that I think also is an interesting gag that I'm not sure if it made me laugh specifically, but his guest verse was actually a catchphrase verse. And Connor talks about how instead of just having a catchphrase like most musicians do, he had a verse made up of all the catchphrases he could think of. And it's ridiculous. It's It's not absolutely ridiculous. It's not sung as well. It's spoken. It's wrapped. Each of the verse, each of the catchphrases are done in a satirical 1980s, 1990s television catchphrase doinky doink sorry dad dinky nuts squirrel jam hats there you go like each of them has a different inflection there's no flow to it it's just random nonsense coming out i really enjoy the idea that this this kind of trite little bit is what inspired his career and promoted his career because it it, well that's basically the thing i said before all it takes is something really stupid very often to promote this and this also is where controversy of the uh film as well first comes in because it's claimed that one of connor's former bandmates actually wrote this verse and not him and that connor took credit for it that would be lawrence lawrence and so but also what's interesting is the first time on the soundtrack we hear a little bit of a difference between the tracks that are meant to be heard in full in the movie and those that weren't. Whereas Equal Rights, we saw the entire music video, we heard the whole song, so it was about two and a half minutes. This one is just about barely two minutes, and the majority of the song is spoken over except the catchphrase verse, which they do show the music video for, uh, the bit of the music video for. Which and is all his, gifts. All gifts, essentially, in him, and you hear the full verse. And you do see Emma Stone a little bit in the music video as this character. Didn't recognize her right away. <laughs> did not. Um, singing the chorus, I believe. And so, you know, there is definitely a difference in length. I'm not seeing a difference in quality, per se, but definitely a difference in length of the songs that are meant to be featured at at length as opposed to the ones that are just supposed to be spoken over. The thing is you have to have a threshold for these kinds of tracks because each and every one of them, especially since they're in the early part of the film, is meant to portray his confidence. Uh And so they're really obnoxious. In fact, I think one of the most obnoxious ones, one of the most awkward ones, is the next track, Finest Girl, Bin Laden song. Which essentially, at its core, is a song about a girl who wants to be fucked like Bin Laden's cave was invaded, even though he wasn't in a cave. Which is a really long way to go for a metaphor, but hey, at least he, as a pop singer, admits it within the track. Sure, but that said... I I couldn't track the metaphor. (laughs) That said, I could see you horny like a stegosaur. That said, again, your request is so irregular. She put a beard on, and I started looking at the exit door, then turban, then a tunic, and then she said, invade my cave with your special unit. And in the... This is also another song that's presented at length, but it's during the live performance. During that line that Steve just mentioned, there's a girl on stage putting 
putting on all those things, which is incredibly racially insensitive and incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And well, so, again, shallow understanding of of current events. But what's interesting is that this song is definitely designed to be cringeworthy. And there were songs in the R&B and hip-hop community that come out that you go, are you really singing about that? The one that comes yeah. to mind for me is called Pregnant by R. Kelly and Tyrese. And it's mm. literally a song about singing about getting a girl pregnant, seeing a girl and wanting to get her pregnant just so she could be the mother of your child. Yeah. And it's singing about it, which is just... It's cringy. It's cringy. It's cringy. It's cringy. And so <laughs> that's what this is designed to be from a spoof stand- standpoint. But that said, it did its job because... I was watching this movie at my computer with headphones on, so my wife couldn't even hear it. But she was in the same room, and I still felt like I wanted to sink into my seat. Yeah. Because it just is designed to be uncomfortable. That said, that's the purpose of the track, so it was successful. But it actually has some some solid lyrical work as well. Wordplay really is, word is always strong with The Lonely Island, for sure. This girl requested intercourse to bring her to climax with the clinical efficiency of the assassination of Bin Laden. You're harboring a fugitive, that ass. And my justice will be punitive, I'm a smash. Night vision, they can see us through my GoPro. She tried to negotiate. I said that's a no-no. Now I'm creeping in her bed like, go, go. She tells me to go low, then looks down and tells me that I gotta terrorize that pussy. Gotta terrorize that pussy. Uh, so I did it. Improvised some crazy shit. Seal Team 69 sexecuting that hit. Like, this is... I, this why is are like, we doing this? It's so cringy. It really is so cringy. But honestly, that's really tight lyrical work. That's really oh, solid wordplay. But, well, all right. For I'm, the I'm, gonna, context, I'm it's just going to extend that it is interesting considering it is... I would think a very difficult metaphor to try to actually, you know, to flush out. Right. But they do it, and hell, I guess that's got to give Connor for real some credit. Except that it's one, it's a metaphor that no one asked for. Right. Well, yeah, and also. That's the point. Part that of, is the point. Well, yeah, because as the narrative of the documentary, <laughs> this is the second single from the album, and Crashes and Burns probably harder than the first, equal rights. Because again,. Racially insensitive. There you are. So you have, yeah, as long as you have the threshold to just endure this, you understand it's all part of his downfall. Because yeah. each and every one of his ideas is just that he's he's in his own head right now. He's not right. really thinking about other people. Even any attempt that he does make to appeal to other little demographics is usually always misunderstood, convoluted, comes out wrong yeah. because of how removed he is from real life. Yeah. And also, throughout the movie up until this point, it's stated that Owen, one of the other members of the Style Boys, is his DJ, but he says to the camera that he's DJing, he's showing off his equipment, and they're like, oh, do you use all this for the show? This is my first keyboard. This is a classic. Talking about it. So you use that? No, no. It's called an iPod. I run it off my iPod. I hit Which is pretty funny. And they talk about how Owen also produced his first record, but the second record, he has something like 40 producers. No, specifically cited 100 producers. 100 producers. 17 tracks. 17 tracks. (laughs) And so... It's showing also the insanity of, which also the non-continuity between track to track and even theme work-wise is represented by that number. Well, also, you know, I've had people actually pitch albums to me that way, being like, no, no, it's great. There's so many producers. They got everybody to this. They got everybody together on this. And... The, the, is this a good thing? Is, is this really supposed to be well, a selling so, point? So, so, You're so, telling me that all these different people with, that have completely different artistic directions, you put them together and automatically it will equal success? It's just a gimmick. Not, That's not, all it ever is. I wouldn't say it's just a gimmick. I would say to the extreme maybe, but like for Coloring Book, which we reviewed, 
by back in episode 204 by Chance the Rapper there were multiple multiple producers on that from a track to track level but again the narrative of the whole record was loose it was mostly supposed to be a mixtape and so but I, I remember bringing that up in that episode that there were some things there that split in odd directions right I understand that's part of the point of like the mixtape culture there but yeah. at least if you go into it expecting that thing just to kind of bring it up out of the blue is very strange right yeah. and well, it's, it's, sometimes it's very clearly for the publicity that you will automatically get by accessing all of those individual artists' fan bases. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you have twice, twofold, threefold, fourfold. But it also is sort of poking at um, the J. Cole album, which went double platinum at this point in time. Yeah. Um, because not not saying J. Cole's album was bad at all. It did go double platinum. It was okay. uh, back in uh, 2014, his third studio album. Great album, but it was... J. Cole went platinum with no features. Like, that was the amazing part of this. Yeah. And it became a meme that he went platinum with no features. Well, shit. He you was mean he a did good a enough, of- he's a good enough artist that he was able to do it himself. Yeah. This is sort of taking the other route of, well, no, we're going to make it great because we are tapping into all that. It's just a little bit, it's a, it's a little bit upsetting that so much of music has to have features even though even this album has features even though so many collaborations have been great touting features or additional guest artists or anything like that to sell an album to sell a song is kind of cheapening the music itself because if that is your selling point not the music itself not the quality not the lyrics not the sound not the mix then what are you actually trying to sell to me besides a name? That's essentially my point. And, you know, sometimes it's just favors, trading favors. I mean, like, hey, you know, he, he was on my records. So I thought I should be on his record, and he thought that was right. <laughs> you well, know? But, but, I mean, stupid stuff like that. But but that's that's not always stupid. I mean, that makes sense. There's a lot of Nerco rappers who I've listened to who have, like, featured on each other's records because they want to keep collaborating and that kind of a thing. Yeah, but that's but like they're not selling it that right, way. That's my point. Yeah. yeah, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You right. know, it's like there are people who stay in marriage longer than they should, for instance, when, like, a divorce could probably better should be done maybe years earlier we're not marriage counselors again hate mail send it to steve (laughs) no this applies to you listening now (laughs) anyway back to the film and to build off finest girl our next track mona lisa is in the same sort of vein it's about how much the mona lisa sucks well yeah and this is done in a justin timberlake style which is extra funny since he's a in the movie b a close friend of andy samberg and has worked with long island time and time again but it's still on the upswing of how incredibly obnoxious this guy I can be. Right. Of course, you go to see the Mona Lisa. It's hailed, you know, you, it's hailed in the Louvre. It's hailed as one of the finest works of art, or at least one of the most captivating works of art. And what does he have to say? It's an overrated piece of shit. Yeah. That's about it. And With your the- terrible style and your dead shark eyes and a smirk like you're hiding a dick, what the fuck is this garbage? Mona Lisa, the original basic bitch, traveled thousands of miles to see your beautiful face. Talk about a bait and switch. You ugly. It's not just that. That's, I mean, he makes, harsh. makes fun of the pyramids for just being piles of stone and stinking of camels. Yeah. But he says the pyramids are still not as bad as the Mona Lisa and how fake the French are for touting this work of art as how good this painting is. Yeah. Which is a little bit of a weird American jab. Like the satirical Americans don't like the French because the French are the French. Just be glad that Mona Lisa is an, is an inanimate object. Yeah. Those, that's them some hurtful words. <laughs> I think my favorite gag in this track, though, in this 
song is referencing the Garbage Pail Kid version of the Mona Lisa, which he shows on the prompter or the Titantron or whatever it is, the giant screen during the concert, which to me is hilarious because, of course, I grew up with the Cabbage Patch Kids and the Garbage Pail Kids, and it's just such an odd reference to make in modern times since most people don't remember that It's another shallow understanding. Like, it's just through, it's strange through his mind, through the lens of his understanding of media, like, oh, Mona Mona Lisa, I, I, looks like a garbage pail kid. That's what it looks like. One of the most revolting things to come out of the 80s, probably. And this track also does a lot to set up the next series of scene works, because we're going to be introduced to a new character, a new main character for the cast. Um, Because during this bit, they start talking about the fact that Aquaspin, I believe, is the name of the corporation backing him up, which screws up a lot of stuff on the eastern coast when they make all of their toasters and microwaves and refrigerators and uh, washing machines play music from the new album. Automatically, which is a jab at when you 2 forced iTunes to download their new <laughs> album. This is forcing these people to listen to and download Connor's new album. Every time they read the fridge. Him, without... P- permission which is like an invasion of privacy well, that's, a, that's a an interesting analogy to make but I, I don't know if it's quite i don't know if what you two did was quite as um well no injurious. it's not <laughs> some of the things it's were not actually but that's the, the argument, argument yeah, yeah, people yeah. made which is why it's funny here because you get that little brief like twitter response viewing screen which is like it's an invasion of privacy which is the exact same things yeah. people were saying about that about YouTube that album, album which it was not an invasion of privacy it was just a terrible album well here you go here's something free and they're like but we don't like it, even we don't though it's want free. It. No, you, uh, you assaulted you? my ears by freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, what it does is it shows that they're going to now introduce a new act, an opening act. So who do they go after? Well, in R or Aren't, Harry, the manager for Connor For Real, is, tells them that, okay, there's, there's bad sales. They're looking for a new act. All right. Does anybody have any ideas? One, but you are going to like it. Wait, did you say R or Aren't? R. And we go straight into Hunter the Hungry is Gonna Eat. And which is Hunter, by which is written by the Lonely Island and performed by Chris Red, and he plays Hunter the Hungry. I have a confession to make. This is a bit uncharacteristic for my tastes, but this was actually a big musical lift in the course of the soundtrack yeah. and for the movie as a whole. Because there you get a little used to the pop styles of like the songs that precede this. But this one is a big shift because it's it's more in the gangster rap vein, right? It's, and it's at least there's that, it, that, yeah. that abrasive, you know, we're gonna throw down tonight, and there's everything here stomping through the forest like a retarded Tyrannosaurus. Hunter eating beefcakes in the back of a Fort Taurus. It's aggressive. And mm-hmm. Hunter, I, this actually made me laugh out loud. The way he begins this track is just by coughing. It just shows the irreverence of your quote-unquote almost villain. Because there's there's some there's some a bit of a seedy introduction to this guy that he's a little off. He's a little crazy. And I, I think that because of the rising action of placement of this song in the film, it leads to this like kind of undoing Connor a little bit to bringing in this other guy it does kind of take the spotlight off of him and Hunter for sure is his own artist and it also showcases the fact that the the track itself correct me if I'm wrong 
but I don't think I am. It has a little bit of like a postmodern flair to it in its actual setup and its uh, in its in its choice of lyrical delivery. Only it may be the self-referential kind, the meta like all right, he's he's basically just trashing his own music as right. if that's going to be his appeal, but right? He says, "Fuck a chorus, fuck my mom's, fuck your dad, fuck this song." Seriously though, fuck this song. I can't stand it, man. Fuck this song. But that's not the point. The point I'm bringing up is it's not sung that line he just kind of stops and yeah, he does. goes seriously though fuck this song i can't i can't stand it man fuck this song yo and yeah. then the direct reference to campbell soup campbell soup i'm pretty sure that's andy warhol i right I, was, I was thinking that it's I gotta be andy that. warhol and well also- that, that's just become because of andy warhol and because of the joke that he has become to a lot of people mm-hmm. even though he did a lot of very interesting things too a lot of people just see him as this like postmodern, completely out there avant-garde doesn't really connect to anybody on any real level but they of course think of the Sam- the campbell's soup thing because that's that's the pop art take, that he used to did do did it yeah. take so much creativity to really just draw the can and the same idea here doesn't really take that much creativity to trash your own song yeah, but also stylistically exactly. the song is making fun of and parroting DMX and like these artists who would be uh, overly confident confident even the 50 cents of the world like they would make these songs to just brag about themselves this is a song that's got the attitude of him bragging about himself but essentially he's tearing himself down and bragging about himself at the same time but this song isn't played in its entirety in fact the second verse becomes just background music so you see the full interaction between these two characters hunter and connor and they hit it off right away, but this guy is 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 definitely promoting a creep vibe, yeah. kind of a, a weird vibe. His turn of phrase is a little bit off. His actual like stance and like how he f- how he says things like, "I want I I, I, I love you, man. Like I want to be you. Like I want to be you. Like he's gonna rip off his skin and be him." Kind of a he's feel just, going on. Well, right and there. then at the, and then later in the movie, spoilers. He, um, Connor spoilers. mentioned everything. Spoilers. Connor mentioned. Did you just single white <laughs> female me? Which is exactly what that I want to be you yeah, thing yeah. is like. And so you know. Yeah, well, the other thing is that I'm not sure this is just you know him tearing himself down. It's essentially showing his irreverence yeah. for for maybe not all right for his art, but for just the public in general and for what they they're going to consume. I I really like the lines. I got a lot of dichotomy and I think I need a lobotomy. Snort more keys than a boss, steal more ball than a game. That's blah, blah, rap, 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 rap. He just (laughs) inserts his own stuff. I rap good. Who cares? Shaved my balls. Kept the hair. Knit that shit into a sweater. Motherfuckers itchy as shit. Fuck around and I'll kill you. My safe deposit has got a million, dude. That's how much he doesn't care about anyone. It's It's another level of Kind of what Connor has been guilty of, but it and it kind of shows that the spotlight is going to shift more toward Hunter because another bit of spoilers, he's selling more. Yeah, and I think that that, that irreverence is what makes the track clever, but also I think fills it out as almost a complete rap track too. For, for the most part, it is a complete yeah, rap track. Yeah. yeah, which is why it was actually one of the most interesting songs to me. Just musically, the abrasiveness of it was it kind of it kind of perked me up in that point. But again, so. the previous tracks were designed to be irredeemable. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's go to track nine. Should I move? Which, which is th- a bit of a throwback because this is another one of those uh, sharing too much of your life kind of tracks. Yes, this is a bonus track. Labeled a bonus track on the album. It's not in the movie. Um, but they throw it here to kind of break up the record. And this song features Akon. And they've worked with Akon before on the song I Just Had Sex as the Lonely Island. This is a love song 
about buying a new house, <laughs> which considering what we talk about celebrity and the Cribs era and all of that, this idea of writing a passionate struggle, you know, the struggle is real love song. That's what I'd call it more. The struggle is real rather than just a love song. Well, because there's something about it that is like, it's that, it's that, that it's forlorn. Point. Even, yeah, yeah, forlorn. There's what, but, and, but of course his problem is buying a new house, 10 bedrooms, 10 baths, 7 square, 7,000 square feet. Three blocks away from his old house. Three blocks of the, like this is these are the problems in his yeah, yeah. life, and he's and what like a, he ends the song talking about he bought the, he decides to buy the new house and he gave the old house to his dogs, and it's just it's just so overblown and ridiculous that you can't help but laugh at it. How could you leave your old house six thousand square feet in a dolphin themed pool? Uh, it makes me believe that they actually cut an MTV Cribs part yeah. of the movie. I mean, I would get I would guess that they wrote all of these extra songs to do extra bits in the movie and. Not all of them made it in. Just like there are some songs on here that get music, have music videos on the Lonely Island YouTube page, but they're not in the movie. So I imagine those were also deleted. Scenes. But reading this, it's it's pretty hilarious. Even just just reading wise, I mean, so many options and all in my price range. The decision is torture. My head's playing mind games. Yeah, all in my price range. I, ugh, I'm glad I'm not him. Yeah. I want rich people problems. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't want any problems. Rich people or poor people problems. Wow, that's well. Now he's asking for too much. Yeah. <laughs> You're know, actually right? worse. You're way worse Jeez, now. I'll, uh, let's give you the world. Um, <laughs> yes, please. But uh, but you know, as a song standing on its own, it feels like a Lonely Island song. It's meant to be a Connor for real song, a solo song, not a Style Boy song with all three of them. But uh, you know, it's funny and it's ridiculous and it's overblown, which is what the Lonely Island do. So uh, it pretty much hits all the checkpoints. Um, from here, we go to track ten, Two Banditos, which is. Uh, Connor for real featuring um, Hunter the Hungry, and this is this is the point in the movie where it shows them start to bro out essentially. Like there was some adversity at first, but now they're really getting along. They're pranking people. They're performing together. They're best buds, and also shows to show the disdain that Owen has for that relationship because yeah. Owen is one of his oldest friends. Right. Owen was the one that stuck with him through all of it, even and after he, Lawrence got pissed and went off to be a farmer. Owen was the one who, who stuck with him for all, even when he wasn't really doing anything. It's yeah. his job, his job so as, a, as a musician. Yeah, he, he's playing an iPod and on a, he presses play in a stadium. Yeah. So it's connected to the, th- I mean, that's just a little bit annoying. But here's the thing. I don't know if this is featuring Hunter. I don't know if, like, I wouldn't say featuring at this point because remember, Hunter is the bigger artist. It's just, well, yeah, I guess at this point, it's he's just. He's not the bigger Connor yet. doesn't know that. Really. He's not the bigger yet. You he's, know, like. He's getting there. But yeah. he's getting there. It's, you're right, it's not featuring. It's Hunter, it, it's, it's Hunter the Hungry and Connor for real together. It's a, a duo song, you know, that they made together. Yeah, it's the, you're, where the two banditos, kind of like presenting the packages, like, we're, you're going to hear the both of us now. That's, yeah. that's the new, the new entity. And we get the majority of a live performance for this, which is just ridiculous and you know i mean like the Two lyrics cute little kittens yeah and well, then they no, pantomime no, no. on the stage like it's they're not cute just that kittens. it's that every reference in the verses is essentially talking about how large and awesome their penises are yeah <laughs> from the uh torpedoes the bright pink tuxedos uh things like the shooting star bad metaphor here Shooting star imagery of burning and burning brightly and quickly. Yeah, okay, that's something you want to talk about your junk. Or, uh, 
I fucked your first cousin with the didgeridoo. And when she came, you know, it sounded like wow, wow, wow. And yeah, then the it goes on sound. for too long with yeah. wow, wow, and that wow. The music actually with... cuts out to do that. <laughs> and the mu- and they do it again maybe, later maybe, in the maybe song. Maybe they actually meant a didgeridoo, though, because, you know. No, they did mean a didgeridoo. <laughs> that's why they're making that sound. <laughs> yeah, well, John's implying it's all phallic references. Well, yeah. that's exactly what it is. Think yeah. of the, think of what a didgeridoo looks like and what it would do to a person. That is true. After being inserted. That is true. We probably should have said at the top of the show how much like gratuitous references are going to be done during this review. Yeah. Because probably. of the cursing and the sexual innuendos. Probably. There's even... There is the power of editing. We, a, we could go back and warn him. No, we, I don't we have we a time machine. No, we shouldn't do Temporarily. that. I don't think we should. Uh. Like In retrospect, we might have, but yeah, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> we might have. But anyway, this song gives way to, in the movie, you know, the two of them becoming pals, as I said earlier, and the dynamic shifting in the whole touring group from his yes men to his manager to his best friend and all of this stuff and how, you know, also following this, there's a scene where Connor suggests that Owen wears a giant Daft Punk-esque helmet while DJing, which then will hide his identity, distancing him even more. But before that, we actually get a little bit of of an idea of the actual break apart of the previous band. Oh, that's right, It starts right, yes. coming in a little bit more and why... Well, because they start interviewing... Oh, uh, not Owen. Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence, actually, in his home on the farm. Not just that, but they also start getting more invested in Owen himself. Yeah. And start... That's where the whole idea of, do you, do you really, I'm going to be wearing this giant, like... It's not just a, a, a Daft Punk helmet. It's like a full, like half a story sitting on top of his head with a giant spotlight and the ability to make the brom sound. Yes. So between that and the fact that they reference Lawrence and are talking about how his life kind of sucks at this moment, being stuck on a farm, not really enjoying it, they also reference his only solo song that didn't really get much airplay, which is Things, Things in, in My Jeep. Jeep. And the joke Which here, is our track 11. The joke here is actually one of the better setups and better pieces of irony on the on in the movie. I'm sorry, it, it, really it is, is comical to listen to you selling this as some cr- no, form of high comedy. It's not the music, it's what immediately follows it with celebrities going, I just can't connect it. It was Nas specifically saying, yeah, I didn't really connect with it cuz I had different things in my Jeep. There you and are. that, that little bit, that little lie of, okay, because I don't have the same exact things, even though in the beginning people like Mariah Carey think they're humble, so Obviously, they would connect with "I'm humble." I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. that because it's not just the joke there; it's actually being self-referential to the film itself. It's going and throwing back and, and talking about the way all these different talking heads, which are in some ways part of the problem that is what's being explained in this film. I'm gonna call BS. I think this is a pretty isolated joke, and I think it 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 really functions just for that one-liner, which is not in the soundtrack. And I thought it should have been because yeah, that before. was one of that's that's the thing that really should have followed up this entire track. It should have either been its own thing, just following it up, or it should have been part of the track, like after maybe five seconds of silence. I didn't really relate to that song because there's different things in my Jeep, yeah. which, which honestly did get a solid laugh out of me yeah. in the film because yeah. of how ridiculous. Just the whole concept of relating. Like people always say, "Oh, I, I didn't relate to that song," or "I really related to that song." When I don't think it takes a wild amount of empathy to relate to most songs in the world. Right. The idea that you couldn't for something as stupid as this. Is well, absurd. right. And also the thing that's funny about that line delivery—it's delivered deadpan by Nas, who is 
lauded as one of the greatest rappers, and for him to say that he didn't identify with the song because the th- like and has well, rap who's a yeah. perfect candidate to to yeah to right. voice the joke. And so, um, but also, what's interesting that I got a little more from the album version as to the snippet that we got in the movie is that Lincoln Park is actually featured on this song, and the song as a whole does kind of sound like an old school Lincoln Park song, which means that it was written, they understood the gag, they took they allowed them to be made fun of and then wanted to be in the song to boot. And I think that's really great as well. And it it it's just bizarre. It's literally just listing things I, in, I, in I a think, Jeep. I think they were ripping off Johnny Coltrane. Well, oh, <laughs> Boxing right. gloves, condoms and blue block. These not are the quite. things in my Jeep. It's not yeah. these are not some of his favorite things. These are some <laughs> things in his Jeep. Just not some shit. Just some stuff. All right. But the song the but the song as a as a whole is designed to kind of prove why uh, Lawrence failed and afterwards yeah. you look at it and kind of go but I don't get it which like is why just, did he fail which is just it it is all a setup because the the thing itself is not it's not great music and it's not great lyrics it literally is a l- giant list that exists for the one joke at the end but what's also going on here during the movie is that we're seeing in spite of this opening act Connor is still undergoing problems, problems after problems, in that his album is still not selling. He still has a lot of issues with filling up the stadiums. He's not as popular as he used to be. He's losing all the momentum he had. And then after we mentioned earlier that the Connor and Hunter were playing pranks on all of their staff and team, yep. there's a moment on stage after this this moment where he's performing and he's doing quick costume changes. And everyone remembers the the Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction during yes. the Super Bowl and how it was this blown out of proportion ridiculous thing. So, of course, this film conjured up the ultimate wardrobe malfunction. Which is him changing um, outfits and then appearing naked on stage with his penis tucked between his legs. Yes, but which, it, which was apparently necessary. They had to explain it was necessary because of... The, it? The, the, because it was his, getting his, caught. Yeah. His, his junk was getting caught. Yeah, yeah. And but what's great is the lines delivered are so earnest. Yeah. Like, I really think he's hitting his stride acting at this point. Just like, I want to show you my junk, but I can't I can't show you to you. So, but, but I, and then Talking the to the crowd, like, explaining. No, 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 I, will, I, will I have confess, a This was not a laugh out loud moment for me. It was a little over the top. The setup for me was just like, eh. But the line but It was actually the ensuing stuff that was funny. Right. The line that comes afterwards when he's freaking out and everyone's like, does Connor have not have a penis? Is he, is yeah, he yeah, a yeah, Ken yeah. doll? He just goes, I'm going to go, uh, what, what can we do? We have to make a bigger and grander spe- uh, spectacle. Okay. I'm going to go tweet a picture of my penis. Which then, of course, Sarah Silverman, playing his publicist in this movie, says, don't go do that. Don't go do that. Well, (laughs) not even that stuff, but also the the idea that maybe Hunter was behind it. See, I really like this idea of Hunter. Maybe I did, maybe I did, maybe I did. I like the the idea of Hunter as this kind of kind of villain-esque thing because he's the more successful one and because he's just got that twitch. He's a little crazy. He'll do things that you don't expect. I like the idea of setting him up as the biggest villain this film has, apart from, I, I think, as as John so pointedly uh, pointed out before, Connor's own hubris. Right. <laughs> um, but this is important to lead us up to our next two tracks. So track 12, Kill This Music, is a dialogue track that's related to the next track, which is absolutely just a seal song called Ashley Wednesday. So in order to... To 
at, at, during the course of this movie, he gets a girlfriend that is out of nowhere, and of course it's a big deal because celebrities getting girlfriends or boyfriends is a big deal. In fact, that's what she talks about. Like, I want to be the celebrity to grow up that, to be that this, everybody yeah. is like, are they actually together or is this publicity? And so to pull heat off of this wardrobe malfunction, Connor decides he's going to propose to his girlfriend, Ashley Wednesday. And there's dialogue. So at this song, Ashley Wednesday, is a Seal song, is written as a Seal song, and is performed by Seal. And it's so campy. <laughs> but during it, during this proposal, there are live wolves being held by trainers because she loves wolves. No. Cherry blossoms as well. Specifically, she was told that she was a wolf in her previous life. life. Right. Not just that, but she's even more excited when Seal shows up to sing while... Connor's proposing, which is like, okay, he has more money than God that he can get Seal for the afternoon to perform one song so he can propose to his girlfriend. Right, and I like the details. Just about the filming of this, the slight little details, like the wolves are over the top, and I, a lot yeah. of times it's mixing over the top things with really, with really, really subtle things, which for me was like the cherry blossoms, this field of cherry blossoms to make it look as cartoonish, almost anime-ish, this, this idyllic love scene, everything to just paint their romance as being profound. Including profound. having Seal there. In, <laughs> but, even yeah. further, including having all the paparazzis there. Like, she, you invited the paparazzis? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, that's absurd, that's absurd absurd awesome. Comment. That's great. Yes, now I will be in magazines. But the, the really great thing about this song, I think, is obviously when writing it, Seal was included in the process because it really does sound like a Seal song. But also... Barring a few minor things, it's pretty much a legit love song, too, which I thought was really interesting, too. It but was pretty it's sincere. so over the top in its camp value. Right. Like, Ashley Wednesday, a spectacularly beautiful chick with impeccable style and spectacular eyes. See, really, million-dollar words here. Yeah. When, we met, <laughs> when we met, both of our souls clicked like a plug in a socket. Ah, You hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, that hasn't been used before. We With a luminous hair and your sturdy teeth. <laughs> you know, you got right. a point at the teeth. I want our hearts to be joined at the hip, so to speak. So to sp- No, just say joined at the hip. Yeah, the metaphor yeah, will yeah. speak for itself. And not only that, it is and right away, it's borrowing Mona Lisa. It's almost the exact same rhythm beat yeah. of the Mona Lisa. And even is borrowing the idea of, I'm an American man, this is my native land, but for you, I'd summer in England, but I will not go to France. On that, I take a stand. <laughs> Which it's, is it's, also referential to Mona Lisa, the song. Yeah, yeah I'm an American so man, this is my native land. The he same could, exact he line couldn't come used. up with new material to say I love you. He was actually borrowing from himself to make another pop song. Well, and yeah. it is common for pop stars, again, with the um, catchphrase verse earlier, is to have like repeated lines from previous songs, repeated in later songs to reference your own material, right, right. which is exactly what he's doing here. Well, also, you have to be consistent as an artist, right? Because otherwise, there's going to be that jerk to come back and be like, but you said you didn't like France because of the whole Mona Lisa business. <laughs> right. Like, they're filling out his story here. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, this song really shapes an interesting scene that does really <laughs> seem very cartoonish up until the moment where it all goes wrong and Seal is manhandling wolves until he gets attacked on his own. Which... I like I like the, do you see how I got these scars? Wolves. Yeah. Just pointing... like that, I'm that badass. Right, exactly. Which, I mean, I would believe. I'd believe Seal is that badass. I, I think all of us would. Yeah. It's Seal. And, and so... while we do go to uh, a scene directly after this that builds off of it, we do get in the soundtrack song 14 
Fuck Off, which does not appear in the film, probably because of the uh, gratuitous amount of cursing in it. But what's interesting is it does have a full performance video like I'm So Humble on YouTube as a music video. So my guess is, deleted scene, they released it as a music video. But this is taking the trope of pop stars writing questionable songs geared towards children that maybe shouldn't be, and this one... Clearly shouldn't be. Well, it's like you've already seen how he tackles the social issue track. So right. has he kind of tackled, like, you know, teaching kids morals? And, of course, his moral, this is one I dedicate to all the little kids out there whose parents are always writing them, telling them to do your homework, never letting you eat dessert, making you go to bed before you're ready. Well, listen, next time they're acting all bogus, I want you to try this out. Stand up on your tippy toes, look them dead in the eye, and say, Mom, Dad, you can both... Fuck off. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful morals. Beautiful. Beautiful. And it's got lines like, I'm going to live forever. Little things like that that is like, okay, yeah, that's what stupid young kids think. Yeah. That everything, that they don't need They're any untouchable. of this stuff. Especially because this next verse is directly calling out teachers. You can't teach me. You're not my dad. <laughs> like, I can't learn anything from you. Specifically saying parents and teachers, the two role models in a kid's life that are supposed to be the ones to guide them into the future. And then the fact that the music itself sounds like something from early Panic in the Disto, early All-American Rejects, something like that. Jimmy Eat World, like their early, uh, late 90s, early aughts pop music, pop rock music that they were doing. Which they were doing a lot of these same similar team empowerment songs, right? But uh, sweetness, I would, yeah, but of course, things not, like that, not to the same, not like, this extent, no of way. Course. Right, and this is also playing off of the famous Fresh Prince song, "Parents Just Don't Understand," which is yeah. not as aggressive as this, but because he has this background in rap, it's like it's 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 paying homage slash tongue-in-cheek to that as well. Yeah, no, that's that's a lot closer. That's 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 Message you'd at least wise. understand, like the parents don't understand. It's one thing to reach out to kids and say, hey, I get you. Sometimes it can be tough. Sometimes it's tough to be told, you know, to do things that you don't really want to do. But this is just, this is wildly <laughs> out of control. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's one of the reasons it's not in the film. Well, I think... They're not afraid of going overboard in the film. I think mm, this it was might be deleted time. scene. This yeah. might be deleted. Yeah. Could be. I mean, yeah. There, granted, there is enough redundant stuff. You know, yeah. considering how many different angles we have to show, how much of an asshole he could be. Right. So I, yeah, I think it's fair for a producer to say, all right, curb it back. But speaking of the previous scene and what follows after this piece, 13 and 15 tracks are actually very, very solidly linked because immediately after this seal fallout, he's on Jimmy Fallon. He's actually trying to repair his image. He's like, Godspeed on your recovery, seal. I I hope you do better because seal kind of lost an eye. But the one thing that he doesn't want to relive is his past. He's trying to become a bigger and better star, yet Fallon has to just keep going going on about Donkey Roll, the song that made his previous band famous. Style Boys. And so he asks if he can do it with him, and Owen comes out as well, and the three of them do it on stage. But this track starts with one of my favorite lines in the entire movie, because it's delivered by Usher. Yeah, Usher, one of the most well-known pop stars and choreographers probably in the business today, talks about how Donkey Roll made him want to dance. Donkey Roll inspired him to be what he was. The donkey roll was the shit. That's the reason why I dance. And to hear Usher deliver that so deadpan. So serious. So serious is is hilarious to me as a fan of music and a fan of Usher because 
it's obviously couldn't be further from the truth. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, like, all right. I think it's fair to say certain odd things can influence people who've gone in different directions. Of course. And very, and very often people say stay so close to their roots, however silly those roots may be or how far the, the artist has actually evolved from them, they still have to be honest about where their roots are. So to me, it wasn't actually laugh out loud funny. It was like there could be that element of truth in the same way be like every every red-blooded American girl from the 90s are never going to disown the Spice Girls. Well, right, but I think it's funny to me knowing Usher's career and knowing obviously this isn't a real band and the dance for the donkey roll is so ridiculous yeah. that that's why it's funny to it's me. It's not even a dance, it's arm waving. He's such a brilliant choreographer. <laughs> he's essentially so- saying something like the Macarena ex- inspired him to dance. Yeah. And that's where it's funny to And me. I, I would never write off the Spice Girls personally. Right. I still enjoy them. But more the boy. donkey roll. Donkey roll is a, a throwback Beastie Boys number. It's got kinda, that yeah. kind of rap rock feel. It shows that he really has transitioned from a different kind of artist to yeah. this pop star. And it's actually, it plays up the sort of personas that the previous trio was in that they were three guys sort of white boy gangster. Like, they're making fun of that even with the clothes that are portrayed, like the oversized glasses, the jeans that are a little bit too far down the thighs. Not even waist, down thighs. Standing on stoops. It's kind of a mixed reaction because just another piece of spoilers, the direction, the overall moral direction of this film is kind of leaning towards he never should have left. He never should have left. That's where the true talent was. And yet, the funny thing is I do see the sympathy involved. Like, I mean, I I have sympathy towards someone who's like, I have moved on from that. Can we kind of stop talking about it? Right. I'm trying to create new art, and I personally, even though clearly Connor has not evolved, really, he thinks he's evolved, and right. very often artists do. Right. And But in this case, it's clear that he's failing without his previous crew backing yeah, yeah, him. Yeah. And this is where you start to see the, the focus of the narrative shift for Owen to push the band to get back together. He really wants them to make up and be friends again, in, in, involving even the world-famous cinema masterpiece The Parent Trap and how he wants to parent trap people to the point where at one point Connor goes dude are you parent trapping me? Which is <laughs> Well just... at least he saw it right through it pretty, exactly. pretty quickly pretty quickly but um, you know it does, show, it does also show that a lot of the references they were making earlier that Owen is no longer the actual producer of this music that the subtle hints yeah. that Lawrence has been throwing in that he wrote the the the, the, catchphrase, the verse. catchphrase verse that made Connor famous is probably true because Connor doesn't seem to have lyrics anymore. He doesn't seem to have a backbeat anymore. He just seems to be a face these days. And what the song on the soundtrack and the moment in the movie that proves it the most is the quote trip to Spain talking about what it was like when he went to Spain and then the next track Ibiza. <laughs> Ibiza. And he talks about how essentially this song is an excuse to make fun of the Latin explosion of the 90s and 2000s. It pretty much sounds like an Enrique Iglesias track, and it's absolutely horribly butchering and making fun of Spanish. The whole language of the whole. Well, his explanation is that we were all on the road in Spain, and I noticed the people out there pronounced the letter S with like a, a TH, like a th sound. So instead of saying. Spain, they say Spain, <laughs> which of course you use Espana. Espana. jeez. So like, basically, his interpretation of the country is that they all have a crazy speech impediment, and he decides to quote unquote celebrate that. Yeah, and so you know, if you thought we were done, yeah. make, I wrote a thong about it. <laughs> if, you, if you thought 
we were done seeing how dumb Connor can be and how obnoxious he can be, you're wrong, because this song exists. Yeah, I keep setting it up like, oh, this is going to be the end of that portion <laughs> of the album. It keeps on it going. It does come back. And this song, absolutely, from form to execution, is ca- is making fun of that Latin explosion sound. You know, even the J-Lo and Gloria Stefan, who's kind of the progenitor of all that in the late 80s, early 90s. Like, it's making fun of all of those kinds of things. Zesty, spicy, tasty, and lifely. <laughs> Super sexy, not slightly sexy. Everyone is sewing skin. DJ, let the record Spin. Yeah. It, it, you know difficult. what? What's yeah? It's even harder because uh, genius does not actually put the th's, the s's in there. So when I was saying it to myself, it was with the s's, and it was it was hard to get that out. Conquistadors. But conquistadors. Immediately be, following this, you almost every sound, single s. You almost sound like um, uh, Milton from uh, Office Space when you talk like that. A little, little, a little bit, a little bit. What immediately follows this song is the downward spiral to loss, to the destruction of Connor and his career, and even the loss of his turtle. Um, which was oh. actually a frankly that's that tried like, really hard to be a heartbreaking scene and didn't quite pull it off but I know that was on point I know yeah I mean that was the point it's supposed to be almost heartbreaking but when he's in the car and the turtle is throwing up on him and he can't get out because of he's his like, fans <laughs> like, that's, that, that scene was uncomfortable it was but uh, there, this is one of the few sections of the movie that for, for a while you don't get a lot of music because he actually is out of the music scene he yeah he's run away to his parent his mom's house he's, so. he's house sitting his mom's house because she's touring on, t- on tour with Fall Out Boy yeah which was a, 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 another nice little jab that if you're gonna throw it yeah. out there you might shout as well out do to it. Joan Cusack playing his mom and being funny in the very brief scenes she was in mm. pretty much being a party animal who's designed to look older than she probably actually even is the actress and still partying like she's a teenager but what's cool is we actually see legitimate character growth out of this. It's a little bit tried and true. It's nothing particularly special. But Sarah Silverman's character shows up again, his publicist, and drags him to a bar to, you know, enjoy something other than being drunk in his house, you know, whining and crying. Even though the film crew is still there recording his life. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he shows up with a big-ass nose and Honestly, a Honestly, that was a bit of the jump the shark moment for me where the documentary ceased to seem like a documentary because you, you, even in the mockumentaries you, you, like if you're going to frame it that way for its entirety you have to make it seem like like at least there'd be some precedent for taking the camera guys along this one scene didn't like well, yeah. and from this just, point forward doesn't seem like here yeah. repeat on my pants it's not this point forward but for this chunk of the the film where he's trying to reconnect it does feel like just a section of film that's not a documentary after that moment when he goes to the poppies and goes to the award show it does feel like a documentary again because talking heads come back and all right yeah it does it does swing it back does a swing little bit. back but it's just like the obvious thing is that no documentarian would be able to predict this uh dramatic you know fall and rise of his career had they been following him all along of course but that's and, the, what... and they probably would have bailed at this point in the in the film specifically which is why it's humorous in this structure because it wouldn't fit in a documentary. Don't tell me why something's humor. <laughs> I'll decide. I will sure as hell tell you decide. why. Um, but yeah, so he goes to a club dressed up in makeup, trying to hide from the public and he goes to see Owen performing um, he's pulled there by Sarah Silman's character by surprise. Um, the next song we get track 18, simply titled Owen's, Owen's song. song. This is, is oh, this is the... F- so this is a song that if anyone asks, do you really think the Lonely Island are actually talented musicians and producers? This is the song that I would present saying, yes but they prefer to stick to comedy, this is what they're capable of. 
Exactly. And also, this is why I brought up in the beginning of the episode that, that Owen, of course, is Jorma Tacone and that Jorma Tacone is actually the producer. So yeah. he's the musician, and they're really doing a pretty accurate reflection of Lonely Island. So, of course, they're saying, hey, this guy's not just doing this for kicks. He yeah. really is a very talented guy. He did this song. This essentially is, quote-unquote, Owen's song. This is what he could be doing on the side. It's just that all these guys like satire. Yeah. They like what they're doing, but they are totally capable of other things. And what's also fun about this track versus the in-movie performances. In the movie performance, it is an impressive track that we and uh, Connor are supposed to be amazed by, but then when he tries mm-hmm. to sing over it, his voice is cracking and it sounds terrible. Yeah, which on the, is the one liberty that they did take, take because I'm pretty sure Drummer DeCone can sing pretty right. well. Right, and that's because in the album version, he does actually sing. There is no voice cracking. Yeah. It does sound good, and that's because... It's a know, plot device because they need... Connor to be needed in some fashion. Right, exactly. Yeah. And uh, and it's a really impressive <laughs> electronica track, to be honest. Like I'm not just electronica. Really... It's it's got that piano bit mm-hmm. in the middle. What's really cool about Love it that. is it's, it feels like a five to ten minute electronica track that was condensed because it goes through motions fairly quickly, but you can still see the illusions of builds being built into this because it goes from house to piano to house trance combo with some really heavy pieces a it's little bit of dubstep stretching his artistic legs which is something this album has certainly not done but that's because of course because it had to follow the storyline of fairly generic pop music yeah. but, but it's, it, it it almost makes me like I want to analyze this right now I'm totally not in the zone because we're just enjoying kind of following the the arc of the film but this is this could totally be be torn apart in every which way it, it just it's just you're not gonna get a full album of this because no. then it wouldn't be lonely Island it, it would needs, be something else needs to be shown as that little diamond in the rough. I would love, though, to hear this type of a piece done on full album scale. Just, yeah. just this sort of mixing is—it's incredibly tight. It's the briefness doesn't allow me to say it's a genius piece, yeah. Because there is just so much condensed in so little time. Yeah. But even the brief transition from techno to piano back to techno was frankly like solid like it was great to just get that little bit so i want more like as a band and as a musician i want to cone to do more of this Maybe his own side project but also i like how it's filmed because it this is the guy that was literally all he was doing the entire film was just pressing the play button on the ipod now all of a sudden they have him jumping from machine to machine to digitizer to the piano over there and it's just it shows him in all these different capacities and how what a shame for that guy to be like held back but yet ironically may probably making so much more money while he was with connor yeah and also going back to Tacone specifically, the idea of him going solo, though, can be soured because, you know, there is this fine line between being a satirist and take, being taken seriously. And while I absolutely respect and take them seriously as far as their chops go, if he released a solo record, he's known as a comedic actor. He's been in TV and film. He's in this band. He's a sketch performer, an actual actor. Not to insinuate that improvisers aren't, but, you know, I think that you can, like, people might show up going, well, where's the joke? And then people, like, well, go, why is this so we serious? We did kind of talk about this previously with Childish Gambino. Right, sure. Because he is, he's like two-thirds of what you just described yeah. right there. He's already doing a lot of acting. He's done comedy work and he is a serious musician so it's not unheard of to do something true, like this true it's just it's not unheard of but it's rarer than you'd think i think but what this also sets up is that the power of friendship is awesome <laughs> so they obviously have to get the band back together so they go see lawrence and there's that touching scene of 
Connor realizing how big of an asshole he is, and he and gives him the poppy, the one he got for the the verse that Lawrence wrote. Lawrence throws it, and they get in. They hug. They make up. They smoke a lot of weed. Uh, they turn the poppy into a bong. Did like that. Nice little, nice little thing. Um, but it eventually culminates with hey, Lawrence still has that recording studio in his barn for yeah. some odd reason because kids mit, and they go. <laughs> Well, what was that beat? Which That's is the, the next dialogue track. What was that beat? What was that beat that started off like like that thing? And it goes right into Sick Glenda, which is kind of a pared down old school. This is our first rap rock piece. Still a little bit in the vein of maybe BC Boy meets really early Eminem. Mm-hmm. That sort of level of rap, rap rock. But it's a nice track. It actually probably seems like one of the most serious on the album because it's about a girl that keeps brushing him off saying she's sick and i like the way it culminates well either get well soon or die (laughs) (laughs) no you actually you're right it does this is the real song like this is something that there's not a lot of parody in this yeah sure it's funny but it's funny for the sake of the film the parody though is not here because this is something that could be real this is it's them designed to be a sincere moment yeah it's designed to be the antithesis of connor's inclinations which have shown to be pretty flawed yeah. i mean the lyrics themselves come off as like bowling for soup like it's in that exact sort of vein sure. like yeah. just a joke a band that's not a joke but is delivering something funny in a song yeah i mean it's, it's not like a most the most innovative t- kind of thing but at least most people can get on board with hey you know why do you keep not calling me <laughs> there's a little bit a of long in there Right. Just to check up on you, and you better be sick, because if you're not sick, I hope you die. And then, the, yeah, the reaffirming your own, you know, yeah. sick, get, Linda, get better, or fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, of course, snowballs into them getting back together, and then Connor gets to play the Poppy Awards, but he doesn't go alone. And one of the, I think one of the most unique ways to <clears throat> throw jokes at a documentary and make fun of documentarians is there's a moment when they arrive at the poppies and Hunter has his own documentary crew and they're having exchanging words because now um, he's not with Hunter and they're enemies and Hunter starts to talk again into the camera and he's talking into the wrong one. See? And he's like, no, Hunter no, no, is no. the villain. Tell no, him. we're with Connor. And then he talks to another camera and it's like, no, we're with Snoop Dogg. And then Snoop Dogg goes, surprise, bitch, you've been surprised. Yeah. And then it <laughs> zooms out and they show all of these, you know, like... Uh, uh, boom mics and cameras and people getting tangled up in each other trying to walk around each other because there's three different, you know, documentary crews following p- different people around. That's absurd. And it, and it was very absurd, but it feels that way sometimes at these events. And so I feel like that was a fun way to kind of poke fun at that. Like, how ridiculous is it to bring an entire documentary crew to an award show? I'm just saying, you keep doubting the, my theory that Hunter was the villain and he says in this scene, I did it. I did, I did it. I did it. I did he confirms that. the prank. The weird... James Gum Sounds of the Lambs wardrobe malfunction that happened earlier, yeah. But but he's basically uh, ancient history at this point because now no one's talking about Hunter. They're talking about the they're talking about the poppies and they're talking about the three of them getting back together for this big track that they composed that brought in the Michael Bolton and uh, and <laughs> don't forget Mr. Fish, Mr. Fish, which, which is Justin Timberlake, and he finally gets to have his shining moment. He, just, and throughout the movie, he plays the, uh, the, the chef, the chef of Connors. And and he even at one point starts singing one of Connor's songs in his Justin Timberlake beautiful heavenly voice, and they tell him to shut up because he's yeah. annoying them. And so, but this song, "Incredible Thoughts," is very reminiscent of Jack Sparrow, which is from the Whack album. And I 
I love Michael Bolton at this point. Like, I'm not a huge fan of all his music, but he just knows how to be a joke, take a joke, and I really appreciate that. Well, the only thing and it's is so that much fun here. The, even though this track seems to be like everything is pretty much resolved here, this is the big success track. Yeah. This is still, this brought back parody to me because yeah. it totally is indicative of that over-the-top, overproduced, and kind of too many featured artists sort of track. It's just, it's the one that as much as everyone may sneer, you can't deny there's beauty to it. Yeah. You can't deny that, all right, even though it's a little can't be to even just bring in Michael Bolton to this every single time he sings that chorus he's singing it beautifully yeah. incredible thoughts incredible minds I'm so overwhelmed how did my brain conceive them too many great ideas inside it's a miracle my head can contain them my spectacular brain for all humankind changing how we think about space and time and now it's time to share them with the people don't you just feel like you're some you're part of some global community here everyone get believe- get together and buy this album that's basically the message <laughs> i believe michael bolton because he, he's got a great voice in this he's it's just, just so, so honest and warm and, and from authentic the heart. and true but it's another this one actually is probably the most lonely islands of all these the yeah. songs on that donkey roll i think are the most and because yeah, for, it starts off kind of serious it's it's kind of the like a boss of the album because it starts off kind of serious and talking about like deep thoughts like raindrops from upon high and yeah, white deep, doves in the dark thoughts. night. Very no, deep. but it devolves. It very quickly devolves into cats addicted to cocaine and things of that sort. <laughs> and how important just I thought of this thing and this thing is going to create world peace. This song is going to cure the evils to, of to, man. Like to dogs, dog food is just food. To, to socks. socks like that. To socks. Mind blown. To socks, mansions are giant shoes. <laughs> that is that is deep stuff. Deep yeah. stuff. Well, remember who we're dealing with here. We're, we're just, these, yeah. This is the crowd here. This is the best they could do. So I guess you got to give them a pat. It's on not fluent to the sun like a boss, but it is still that kind of level of fantastical. At least they're not insulting anyone accidentally, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So this, of course, is the last track uh, featured on the record that's har- embedded in the movie narrative. You know, this song happens. They perform. It's a huge hit. The things wrap up neatly. They the style boys get back together, and the then the, the documentary slash movie pretty much ends. The following songs are featured in the credits or in minor moments throughout the movie, but didn't get as much of a feature as the other tracks we've covered. Starting with Me Likey That, which is a Style Boys song that's the first song during the credits. And the Style Boys are basically the bulk of these last seven tracks. It's there, almost there are like a couple their, that aren't, but yeah. It's like their original EP showing up as like yeah, a yeah. bonus feature on this pop star album. So Me Likey That. It's a little bit offbeat. It's a little bit rough around the edges. It feels like that first try at, at trying to come up with a solid hook, yeah. to come up with a, a great you know riff to just you know get popular. It doesn't feel as jokey as the other tracks did. There are still funny lines in it, but this more or less feels like kind of a party. You know, uh, it's kid. They're it, kids. They're yeah. kids at this point. And then, me when the girls blow us kisses, me likey dad. When your mama does our dishes, me likey like dad. Even just crossing those two things, like you know, the AIDS group that yeah. this is speaking from. And yeah, it's it's not like Seinfeldian observations, you know, that really yeah. reach out to us all. Seinfeldian. But, well, Seinfeld was always making those like, oh hey, yeah, I have experienced that. 
Like, it's, no, no, this no, is no, pretty I'm just, shallow. I'm just, shallow. I'm just talking about the word Seinfeldian. Seinfeldian. Yeah, oh, no, I think he's deserving of an, of an Ian. Okay, yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if anyone is. Kafka-esque. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but this track is pretty straightforward. There, there's not a lot to it. It's fairly brief as well. I have a lot more to say about track 23, Legalize It, which, upon its name and then the reggae beat that starts and the actual setup with a rastafarian showing up around the the circle you think this is a weed track obviously i mean they talk about weed in the movie it turns out that lawrence grows weed like this you know there's a lot of pot humor in there in the previous lonely island records so for sure uh, on the face of it you're like oh it's another pot song about legal and this is gonna be about legalizing pot somehow this reminded me actually of uh, i believe it was on the whack album there was that song about doing cocaine and the music video that went with it Yes. Was that Which on was, the, uh, the Wack album, or was that a previous one? I don't one? remember if that was on the Wack album. I, that was on Turtle Neck and Chain. Uh, yeah. yeah, yep, yep, you're right. But that was the one that was extremely yeah, upbeat yeah, yeah. and kept getting faster and everything like yeah. that. While this one being a... It's a it's, it's a crack a, song, but it's, it's a but it but see it's a similar kind of thing because it's like, basically putting something that is absolutely horrendous in a more positive light, being like, all right, yeah, you expect the legalize it for marijuana because most people consider that the benign form, but no one's going to defend crack, no, right. absolutely no one, and yet just they 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 jump that shark pretty quickly by the first chorus. And but, but what I think what's really funny about it is you don't see that coming initially from the beginning of the song. You think it's going to be about weed, which is has a lot of positive things said about it and that it should be legalized or shouldn't, whatever your view is. People are arguing for it. Steve's right. Nobody's arguing for the legalization of crack, but Absolutely. that's what the song's about, and it's a, a spoof on a, a classic. And also, track. look who's look who your messenger is. If anyone tries to take my crack, I'll kill them on principle. Clearly, this is doing wonders for your disposition. But I do like the little line they throw in there. You just smoked. That that's it, at the end of the first verse. It's before like it goes into chorus. Yeah. It's not you just smoked, which was before then. He was he was going back and forth, man. Like he was doing a really bad Jamaican accent. Here it goes. Vocalizer, really deep Satan voice. You just smoked, and then right into the chorus, which is a little bit upbeat, a little bit manic. They're really playing up the the actual persona, the the theater of this piece, and I like the song. Yeah. The message is terrible, but that's part of the joke, and yeah. it's so great for that joke. It's just strange because the soundtrack has basically reached its peak at this point. We're all unwinding with these things that didn't get fully flushed out, but like right. we reached the big peak with incredible thoughts. Yeah, this is a essentially throwing on stuff to fill out the the credits because you have to have music playing during the credits and stuff they've been working on that they completed ideas for. I mean, even the next track, I'm a Weirdo, which has a music video on their YouTube page, is a fake, spur-of-the-moment, one-shot freestyle, which is a thing people actually do where they film themselves and in one take, they do an off-the-cuff freestyle. But the funny thing about the music video for this, some of this humor is lost on the audio version, but on the music video version... He's supposedly freestyling, saying the things that come off the top of his head that he just met up with some fans and he has a crowd around him like a almost like an alleyway rap. But when he references bananas and some other stuff, the people around him pull those things out like they're holding them. And if it was a one shot if it was, improv, yeah. how, how do they know? They, yeah. Yeah. So and that's the but, gag of this. But stuff like the fact that use a banana as a telephone, use a banana as a telephone, use a banana as a telephone. It's coming off like I don't know what I'm gonna say next. So I'm repeating the same line until I come up with the next part of my freestyle. And yeah. then using words to rhyme with themselves or really screwing up with pronunciation so that they will rhyme. Like 
it's a really poor attempt as a freestyle. Are you, I like are it you, for that. Are you suggesting that there's a manufactured element to Connor for real? Yes. Because I, I won't accept it. I, I know. I know. I, I want to buy the album. I know you do. Um, honestly, the album. yeah, right. I mean, we did. We have. This is the album. <laughs> um, from here, we go to track 25, which is featured a little bit towards the beginning of the the record. Um, mostly the chorus about multiple cowboy hats, or I guess that would be the bridge. No, it's a chorus. It's a chorus. chorus. It takes a chorus. It's an evolving chorus. Evolving chorus. And it's called Karate Guy. And this is absolutely tone for tone and Usher spoof. It's, you know, the ooh girl song, but about, you know, being a karate guy. Kicking Kicking it it like a karate guy. But. But, but, kicking it like a karate guy might imply that you're kicking something. So let's not be too literal. Kicking it as in hanging with friends, but not hanging with rope. You know, just chilling. But it doesn't have to actually be cold. You just it could be it could be any temperature. It's like Drax really. the Destroyer I singing love, this song. Exactly. And that's that's a joke that for me never really gets old. Yeah. Like someone so being I'm, completely I'm, liberal. I'm, I'm really okay with this as their breakout single or the representation of their breakout single. It was way back in the beginning of the film. You're just kinda of undoing it here, going back to that early stuff. I mean I remember when this uh, they were all into cowboy hats and it was yeah. a, it was it was a more full flushed out music video. And the f- the part that got me is not just uh not just the comedy but actually the musicality of it because after he says I like to kick it key uh now now I'm in a cowboy hat so they they shift the 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 um the karate thing over to suddenly the American cowboy which makes no sense at all and, and then, then they, they go, do yee-haw, yeehaw and yeehaw one more time and then finally yeehaw yeah. Just a little downturn. Yeah. It's, it's actually got stuck in my head. That was that was my equivalent of your moment with the uh, yip, 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 um, from here we go to track 26 and we're rounding out towards the end of the album rock- yeah 26 I hope we're near the end <laughs> rock roll skate which is another style by song this is supposed to be kind of portrayed as almost like a rough rider or limp biscuit kind of hardcore though no one would think limp biscuit is really hardcore and that's um, the whole point of it that it's yeah. not really hardcore but it's just it's like a this song is just boy. this song is lewd for the sake of being lewd it's just they say horrible things they're they're lewd and aggressive and i think that's just the purpose of the song it's like yeah we're young kids but we're also we're hard, hard. yeah exactly. yeah we didn't practice that actually that was pretty good yeah, it was i like pretty that good. yeah but um you know the the humor in this is just how lewd it is which is not a laugh out loud thing it's just and this is something that lonely island has done time and time again they do a song that's lewd for the sake of lewd like on whack album diaper money diaper money is i got that diaper money i got that diaper money you know it's where they just say horrible horrible things and each verse gets worse and worse and worse you know this is a similar thing in that they're just being aggressive and lewd which is funny because in many ways connor is no better than hunter right exactly the one who was supposed to be too over the top a little i don't know which actually makes sense that the follow-up track is hey ho which is uh, the final hunter uh hunter the hungry that 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 name it like I get hung up on it. That's I actually, get hung up a, on Hunter the Hunter. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. It's, it's a good name though. I have to give him that. That's I mean, I got to give Chris name. Red a lot of credit. Like he does some really great rapping on this album, and it, it's oh, I don't think he did before. I know he's I'm, a stand-up comedian, yeah. but 
cool. But, yeah, like, it, and it's fun that they brought this guy in who they've pretty much given a three-song three EP to this character, Hunter the Hungry. But Hey Ya Ho could be a, a, a <laughs> I'm a sorry, I, I just had to laugh because I'm thinking about how, how I was describing how irreverent Hunter can be. And the first verse, the first line of the first verse is rock hard, bitch, disregard everything. Yeah. If that's not irreverence, I don't know what is. Anything, anyone, everyone got a gun. Shit, you don't have to tell me shit. But... Hey Ho is the equivalent of Hunter the Hungry is gonna eat. Yeah. It actually yep. could do the same job. I feel yeah. like this might have been a track that they actually had created in case they didn't yeah, want to do the other they one. They could have done the other one. This yeah. would have made a good It is a different feel, but honestly it the does mesh together. Same, yeah. well, not just that. It does feel like it could be part of the same album That's by true. itself. Yeah, of course. Uh, they did a good job that way, and it is still got that kind of fun that the previous track did have. Yeah. So I'm not going to discredit it on that. It's just, it's kind of weird to just have this as like a throwback. Like no other Hunter Again. references. I think Hunter's are my favorite character in this film. Is he's, he's, he's off the wall. I mean, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I, I relate to Owen because I, you know, I like the guy who's kind of trying hard. and... I'm not watching yeah. this movie to relate to people. I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Hunter the Hungry is, a, is for sure a well thought out character. You know, I think also. The character arcs do go from point A to point B for most people throughout the movie. Like even to Meadow's character, there, uh, Harry, the uh, the agent. You know, he has ups and downs, and like even his bits about Tony, 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 which was a play on the band Tony, 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 and, and that he was the fact. fourth Tony with a question mark instead of an exclamation point, and that they kicked him out of the band and all of that stuff, which is a minor narrative in the in the documentary, but yeah. still funny. It's it does give yeah. some background and some credibility as to why the character does a thing especially at the end where he fires himself from hunter and smacks that guy so he could learn some respect that was a great little scene even though i'll be honest that that was like tacked on character development the only character development that was actually important to this film was connor pretty much and the style boys and and maximus i know i would say would really just boil down to connor like, everybody else was kind of just there so that the Connor character could flourish. Which is the point. I mean, because that's... It, it almost seems like that's what these real-life pop stars treat the people around them. As, like, they're just characters to make them look better. You know? In fact, and there's so, a character in the movie that is specifically there so Connor will seem taller in photos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one, the, of his, the, the one, one of his list of professions, the list of people he employs was pretty... That, that, was that pretty got a chuckle out of me. Um, but now we move on to the final track. Our last bonus track that's not featured in the film. It's a Boys to Men esque Ooh Girl song about Dear Maximus. It's not an Ooh Girl song. There's a little too much tragedy involved. The actual setup of the song is pretty tight. I am enjoying it. And this and is sung by all three members of uh, Style Boys slash Lonely Island, and they're singing together. And frankly, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest here. When you go all out with auto tune, it ain't that bad. No, it's not. Like because it that was, was... The, that was the focus of the section, and it wasn't some kind of you know trite little usage of it to make this artist sound better. It was actually during the segment where he says now all i want to do is cry 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 so they auto-tuned the cry and as you crying yeah and as you feel the crying kind of be boxy shifted as auto-tune does it starts to reflect a kind of 
a real cry. Like it feels it feels unique in a way. I can't describe it. And it's important to note that autotune was a tool before it was overused. Like it is a legitimate tool to help with the recording process. To help with the recording process process, not always used to make artists to mask their their flaws in right. in every instance. But what you do have to remember, this is still Lonely Island, so they actually do get Connor, in this case, to start crying and being weepy and auto-tuning the heck out of him in really nice ways. Yeah. He's breaking down. His maximus is gone. But because it's being auto-tuned, it's really... I feel bad for the guy, but I'm also laughing. It's a great, yeah. sad joke. Yeah. Now, because of it, well, it depends on the context. I was... I was laughing a little bit in the movie because of how quickly they kind of ripped you away from that emotional moment because yeah. immediately afterwards it's just silly. Uh, pool about party. The, yeah. yeah, the pool party. But in this soundtrack, because it's the last track, it actually did leave me on a serious note. And I could totally see that. That makes total sense. Yeah, because there's nothing else. You don't have the visual. Yeah. All you have is the sad auto-tune cry song. Yeah. And Dear Maximus being gone. I miss Max, but there was Max too. There was Max, too. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to rebrand this movie a drama. Okay. You know, just All right, just because of that. A dramedy. So I think instead of... A drama-mentory? A drama mentory ah, uh, He's learning with the puns. I'm coming up with random learning. words. Well, we can't beat him, join him. Um, <laughs> can't beat him on the puns. Yes. <laughs> um, it's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, this... Never Mr. Mind. Humble. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, join me. I think that I, uh, I want us to all go around and just kind of talk a little bit about, like, final thoughts on the movie and the soundtrack. And the marriage of the two. And I think whether you'd want to rec- recommend it or not. Like, would you watch it again? Would you recommend it to someone? That kind of a final thought. Okay, I want to start. Um, and I never get to start because when we do other ratings, we have to put a number to it. I feel so apprehensive. But for me, since this this sort of themes that we do, this this review process is so much more lighthearted. It allows me to really just get a little bit cheeky. I don't like comedies in general, especially not comedies in this vein. In fact, uh, this is Spinal Tap. I just don't like that movie at the end of the day. I find it to be a cool documentary with jokes that I just don't enjoy. There are little bits like two lead guitarists that I enjoy about it. But here, they tickled something that I really like. I'm not laughing out loud, but the satire that's presented here, I think, goes just far enough to be a solid movie and then just a little bit farther to make that solidity wishy-washy enough that the comedy really comes through. I'm not laughing all the time, but it's still a good and enjoyable movie. I actually would watch it again. The music and the way it pairs up with the media is tight. It's obvious that one was built on top of the other. And I'm not sure that it was write a movie and then write a soundtrack or vice versa. It feels like a lot of a lot of it was together. It feels like the three of them just started spitballing ideas, coming up with who we're going to make fun of at any given point, and how are we going to make fun of them that way, whether it's going to be in scene portrayal or whether it's going to be in the actual music portrayal or whether we're going to do the two together. It was, it was pretty solid through and through as far as the two medias mishmashing together. The movie itself was fairly tight. A lot of the themes of, okay, this is what's wrong with Connor, and then this is what's wrong with Connor, and then how his career is changing. They flowed to very well together. The cinematography wasn't anything special. 
the overall dialogue wasn't anything special, though I like the flaws that were purposely done, like the misquotes, the bad words, and just the inability to speak intelligently, to say gooder in many cases, to have that kind of level of grammar, does build a lot of that wishy-washy satire really showing through that they've gone a little bit too far and that's okay. So I would recommend this movie. This is this is a fun bridge of comedy, music, and documentary. It, it does a good job of meeting all three of those fronts. So yeah, it definitely gets the thumbs up for me. Okay, so I, unlike John, do like the mockumentary format. I've, for the most part, enjoyed it. I've, I've enjoyed Spinal Tap. I enjoyed uh, pretty much anything that was done back in the 90s. I enjoyed, like, the uh, American movie style, like, which is actually a documentary, but it comes across funny. So, yeah. And then, mo- for the most part, when mockumentaries are done right, and, which so much that they reflect a real documentary, then I think... I think it's generally a good idea. I liked The Office for at least a good portion of its run until they kind of ran out of ideas, but the whole premise was good, and of course it was always based on the British office as well. So uh, it, it really is the comedy style in the end. And that's where I have a little bit of a split because I have not really been a fan of the recent SNL brand of comedy. Now, I know they're all individual personalities. You can't just lump all of the SNL crowd together. But also, remember, recent for me is like the last 15 years. It goes back to like 2001 when I have not really been into SNL ever since then. They come up with like maybe one good sketch uh, in their hour and a half if if they're lucky for me. Uh, but I know, I know a lot of people that, that really like that. It's just that I know that out of that style, a lot of a lot of people who've both joined SNL or who have been offshoots of SNL or who were working with people who were once a part of SNL, they there is a little bit of like blending there in terms of their style of comedy. But I do remember thinking that Andy Samberg really stepped out in that crowd. I remember really liking he was my favorite member of that particular cast when he was on. And so that's why I was able to sort of take the leap toward uh, Lonely Island, which is all based on parody. And parody is something that I really, really love. And frankly, when SNL gets farther and farther away from parody or when they do crappy parody, that's when I dislike them. If you go back to really solid parody and they can all act in the process and be funny in the process, then I'm generally going to enjoy it. Um, this film, this leads me back to an interesting discussion uh, and then I'll get to the music later, because right now I'm just talking about the film. Leads me to an interesting discussion we were having off-air about whether the comedy is is uh, aided by sitting with people or not. And the answer is pretty obvious, that if you're sitting with people, then there'll be a certain contagious element. Comedy is always best enjoyed in a group. But then is that really a true test of the comedy itself? Because if you are alone, then that would be our test that we've often applied toward music, rating in a vacuum, which I think is really more applicable toward comedy, because then you'll know, you'll really know if you find it funny, if you don't have any outside stimulus. And I did laugh in this on my own because the way I experienced this movie was just in private, on a tablet, on my headphones. And I think, Matt, you enjoyed it pretty much the same way? Yeah, on my computer, but on my and headphones. And John, you enjoyed yeah, it, it exactly the same way? exactly the same way. So we really did get the full test out. And in this case, every single moment that I pointed out today in this podcast that I laughed hysterically was about every single moment that I pointed out. I don't think I left out anything like i don't think i left out any laugh out loud moments so if you actually were to go back through this podcast and count them which i don't expect you to do i'm just going to estimate it at approximately six or seven then 
that's a little sparse. That's a little sparse, and that leaves the other things, like the story involved, which was just, it was function. It was all function, and I basically got the parody, I think, when I saw the trailer. The rest of it is just, yeah, filling out the details. I laughed hysterically at the TMZ thing, because I hate TMZ, and oh, why they've been waiting to be parodied. Um, and then I laugh at specific little aspects of making fun of pop music, such as, for instance, the way people actually relate or don't relate. At the end of the day, just use your empathy. That kind of stuff. Intelligent observations about music. That's what I really found funny in this. And there's also that level just below where you're not laughing out loud, but you still find it funny intelligently. I, th I, I think that's fair game. I, I, I do that often enough with enough other things that I love that I, w I don't want to leave that at the door here. So that takes me to the music. What can I say? It's the Lonely Island, and I don't know if the object of this discussion being that it was the same people uh, who wrote the film, who also wrote the music, really factored too heavily in here because I think a good producer, a good director is really going to know how to apply interesting things. It's just, it's hard to even separate the two. The story here is about the, the person that you hear in every single track. It, it, just, it can't be separated. It's just a unique form of art that I think is worth giving just a little bit more credit than my somewhat lackadaisical experience of this comedy. It probably will never d be done again. Um, in fact, the fact that it was done and kind of modeled a little bit after Spinal Tap, but using totally different el different elements of pop culture, I think was pretty incredible. So, yeah, I think it, would s it still lands as a great flavor of the year, but it's definitely an original idea. I enjoyed it for that. I enjoyed the music from the comedic perspective. Very often the lyrics are incredibly well written, even when they're very cringeworthy. That's always the point. And you just need to keep aware of that as you go through this film. If you can take yourself out of yourself, then yes, I think you will absolutely enjoy this movie. So I would recommend it to anyone who enjoys comedy in the broad. If I knew their specific tastes, then maybe I'd be a little bit hesitant, because I know where it's pitfalls lie all right my turn um <coughs> i mean at uh, on the broad if you're a fan of lonely lonely island you'll like this go watch it go listen to the soundtrack it that part is very simple you know the music in this movie is exactly what i expected from the lonely island they they are consistent in what they do and i enjoy what they do as far as mockumentary goes, I'm with Steve. Like, I love This is Spinal Tap, and there aren't a lot of movies who have tried to do what they did. And this movie, more or less, in a different genre of music and a different, a little bit of a different kind of comedy writing, it's a little more low-hanging fruit, but it's essentially trying to do the same thing they did. And I love that. And I wish there were more things that integrated music and movie in that way because it's a different way to in, in, uh, integrate it. And like This is Spinal Tap, the music's good. Low-hanging fruit is still ripe. Yes, that's very true. But, you know, this is Spinal Tap. Those rock songs were really good rock songs. And just the same here, these pop songs are catchy pop songs. And there are moments, even the hip-hop stuff, I really dig. Um, can you take it without the movie? I think this is why this is an interesting thing. And while I agree with Steve that the fact that they wrote both parts... I don't know if it... It matters if you're a fan of The Lonely Island and you understand what they do. But beyond that, you know, I think that it's to be expected for this kind of project... But I don't think there's any reason to take them separately. I think even listening to the soundtrack, I would l remember moments of the movie. I mean, the dialogue tracks help with that. You know what it is? It's no surprise to me. Every yeah. song of theirs is a story in a yeah. way. Oh, so for sure. of course they could do a movie. Like yeah. I wouldn't even. I wouldn't. All even of question. their music videos were ver very well shot and always. The, they're had a always story. a story. Yeah. yeah. So you know, 
there were plenty of moments where I laughed out loud, but I have, I'm in this interesting place with comedies where I can watch a comedy and not laugh and still be entertained. And so I think it's accomplished its purpose. And that's what this movie did. I was actually invested in the story of it because it was a well-made mockumentary. It felt like a documentary. And I very easily get wrapped up in good documentaries. And so that, plus the music, plus the catchy nature, plus the engaging characters and just the insanity of some of it, really made for something that I enjoyed. I would also recommend this movie and the soundtrack even if you're not a fan of Lonely Island per se, but you like satire, I would give this a shot because I think if you are sick of the state of pop music or you want want to see something that's taking the piss out of mainstream media, this is worth a watch. However, if you hate the Lonely Island, I would probably stay away from it because at its core, it is their work. And if you're not a fan of their style or Andy Samberg style specifically on SNL, you're going to not really find anything here. Um, to, to elaborate more, I don't think is really necessary because we've been pretty clear. And again, this isn't a review as much as a recommendation. And, uh, you know, I, I'm happy with this. Like, I've been happy with previous Lonely Island works. And honestly, I'll keep going back to their stuff because the music is well, most of the music is well crafted. The lyrics are clever and entertaining. And if they continue to do that, I'll continue to come back. All right. So I think this was definitely a fun um, final project, as it were. (laughs) Um, You know, and I think that I want to dive into, you know, as we talked about doing more games, I want to do more movies, maybe even TV soundtrack, which I think would be interesting. That would be interesting. Um, You know, like... Mr. Robot soundtrack. (laughs) I have it. Um, Yeah, it's so good. You know, for me, like uh, a sitcom that I would reference, because music really was integral to the sitcom, the sitcom Scrubs had tons of great pop music in it. And so that would be an interesting thing to look at. Also, they did a musical episode, Mm -hmm. which we could isolate as well. So anyway, I think that in the new year for 2017, I really want to approach cross-media contamination, as I like to call it, a little more. I feel like as analytical as we are and as much as I love doing that, You know, I think every once in a while taking a look at media at the broad but still bringing it back to music will be fun and it'll be different and I want to try and do it more. So if you have suggestions of things that you want us to approach in the new year, that's not just a straight up album recommendation, but maybe a movie at its soundtrack or a TV show on its soundtrack. Cross-contamination. We're going to call it a cross-contamination. I I would love for you to recommend that because I I think I want to branch out more into that. I mean... You know, I've talked at length about how much I love Scott Pilgrim, the movie, and the soundtrack, and how integral they are together. And I think I still want to at some point bring that on here. But that said, I think this was a fun exercise, and I'd like to continue it in the new year. It's, it's, I, actually, I want to be kind of on both sides. I want to, I want to both pursue more challenging music and also go towards stuff that is more cross cross media. Yeah, I, I like, and I agree. It would be an interesting two directions to go. I think those are both both of the more interesting directions than simply, you know, towing the line of things that are easy to, music that is easy to discuss. Right. There's a lot of it, and sometimes we, we tow that line a little harsh, but we do like to play the hits. And I actually already came up with a new idea, but I know this game is not going to work because Final Fantasy 15 is like 24 hours worth of gameplay. Yeah. Right. You can't watch something like that, but it, I also wanted to bring it on because it's the first time they actually have a new Composer, I know for it's, the soundtrack. It's not the same composer, which for... is it says fifteen, but he's done like twenty-ish games in the Final Fantasy realm. So mm. this is the first time it's a new person yeah. doing a Square Enix game. 
like this. So I would, and I that's like, impressive, impressive and important to mention because gaming franchises tend to use the same composer because you like a John Williams, you want to continue that score and that similar sound. Bungie mm-hmm. did it for the longest time up With until the, from Halo One to Tommy uh, Tellerico wrote the first, a lot of that stuff. The first yeah. Destiny was almost the entirety of was the same composing group. Yeah, um, and actually, there's a lot of other uh, traditions in, in video games. Just like yeah, Star Wars is going to have John Williams. You might as well keep doing the same guy that made your franchise iconic in the beginning. So it extends to video games and television shows. Sure. And even like uh, you, you can see sort of theme work in play works and things like that. Of course, Broadway sure. Broadway work and off-Broadway Anything work. Anything by Steven Sondheim is going to have the same kind of playful nature as well as expected drama. You know, think about Andrew Lloyd Webber, Phantom of the Opera, like all of those heavily dramatic musicals. But but do not recommend us things like Les Miserables because... No. I'm not doing Les Mis. No. Not again. No. I did it before. We have any, High school. If we're tackling <laughs> any musical on this podcast, it's going to be Hamilton. But until these two yahoos see it, it's not going to happen. Well, <laughs> okay, in the next 10 years, they might actually have, have some tickets. tickets available. That's true. <laughs> it sold out for at least four? Yeah, something like that. But, um, you know, that said, I think that this has been a successful year on the podcast. I'm looking forward to growing it even more in the new year. Um, but why don't, Steve, you give us our final spam mail of 2016. I have been following Hugo Ferreira since he was very young. We always knew him as a very talented person. His music and lyrics as very strong, touching, and inspiring, yet very underrated? That was not a question. I just love any music that comes from him. Is he, is he always assigned by the wrong label? That was a question. He deserves to be with the top. And top is capitalized. I mean, it almost, top. it almost sounds like a real comment on that. Doesn't it? it autographs like, episode. This was totally random, but our last of the year is actually a music-oriented spam. Thank you, Ijoka. Thank you. Ijoka, Ijoka. Ijoka. Awaka, waka, waka. Ijoka, you. Ijoka, you. Ijoka, you. Use, guys. Ijoka, us good. Um, all right. Um, so we're done for 2016. Um I don't know if the guys are going to agree with me, but I kind of want to dedicate this final episode of the year to Carrie Fisher, who just passed away as we of when we're recording this. I'm going to double that. Debbie Reynolds, who died uh, literally the day Dang, we're recording. Yeah. And that one even hits me. That hits me harsh because also relating to music and what we do here, she was president. She was 19 when she did the Singing in the Rain soundtrack, which is something that I grew up on. Mm-hmm. I can remember jumping off couches to something that was done in, uh, what was it, 1952, I think? 1952, <coughs> that was an exuberant soundtrack. And the duets that she did, the stuff that she sang on her own, it re- moved me greatly at a very, very early age and I'm not even like super into musicals but that was totally up my alley actually there's been a lot of loss this year George uh, Michael very shortly before also right around Christmas John Glenn Alan Rickman Gene Wilder we lost a lot of great people David Bowie this Leonard Cohen I mean we lost a couple of musicians that we I looked up to let's let's broaden it to we're dedicating this second to last episode of the podcast, technically third to last episode, because our surprise of every year, that's not really a surprise, to all of the artists we've lost this year in 2016. I know it's kind of sappy, but there were a lot, and a lot of them were very impactful to the three of us in this room, as well as, I'm sure, plenty of you listening. Um, 
but I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to that. Next week will be both our bloopers, as we always do. Steve is a magic man. That'll be delightful. And then right shortly after that will be our year in review in early January, um, where we take on the year of 2016 in music and what we thought of it. So please come back for that. Of course, stick with us. Keep enjoying. And remember, as always, music, music is, is life and, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.